Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Wondery. You can listen to amazing podcasts one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. And Shudder. Try Shudder free for 30 days by going to Shudder.com and using promo code MrCreeps. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. With the weather getting colder and the nights getting darker, what's better than some of your favorite scary stories to cozy up and listen to? Let's get right into it. As we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My grandfather was a special kind of taxidermist, written by Ethan Gord. It's the sort of way that most of these kinds of tales begin. A estranged grandfather passes away and leaves me his cabin and 80 acres of land in the woods. My grandfather had saved his entire life as an electric lineman in order to retire to a two-story cabin with a workshop basement in Eugene, Oregon with my grandmother. He had built the place himself a little at a time over the course of nearly every weekend in that 35-year span. To say the place was charming would be an understatement. Grandpa had taken painstaking details in constructing the place. The stairway was constructed of rough-cut pine with ornate carvings of Roosevelt elk, black-tailed deer, and black bear. The entire cabin was pretty well-constructed with rough sawn lumber of some type or another that Grandpa had milled himself from the property. The cedar ceiling and walls added the extra flair to the five-bedroom, three-bathroom cabin that had become my grandmother's dream home. I had spent many a summer with Grandfather learning how to woodwork, track wildlife, and most importantly to Grandpa, hunt. To be honest, I never struggled with taking a wild animal's life, but I think a lot of it had to do with the level of respect for the animals that Grandpa exhibited. He didn't just shoot a nice buck with a large rack and drive around for days to show it off to his beer-drinking buddies. Instead, my grandfather immediately went to work after a kill, ensuring that no meat, hide, sinew, or even bone went to waste. In fact, most of his cabinets and door handles were constructed of deer or elk antler. And most importantly, he could cook an elk tenderloin to taste as great as any $100 steakhouse ribeye. Grandpa had a lot of pride in how he preserved his game. He always taught me that the preservation of any animal was a sign of respect for a life taken, not merely a trophy. He taught me to tan hides, process sinew, and in my final summer at his place, he had begun learning the art of taxidermy, and taught me what he knew at the time down in the finished-out basement with a walk-in cooler. Unfortunately, my mother divorced my father, grandpa's son, due to the alcoholism that would eventually win his life, and the fallout that was my mother didn't want me around my grandparents anymore and their barbaric lifestyle. I never saw or heard from them again. My mother threw the gifts and the cards away from age 11 on. 
I had been told about my grandmother's passing with a quick text from my aunt while I was in college. I had finals that week and simply allowed the idea of attending her funeral to slip my mind entirely. I am a monster, I know. The idea struck me once I had graduated that I was, after all, a grown man with my own will. So then, having a relationship with my grandfather would now be my choice, and there wasn't anything my mother could do about it anymore. As is often the case with these things, though, I soon after received another text from my aunt, informing me that grandfather had also passed. This time, though, she added an address in time, saying that I really needed to make it to the reading of my grandparents' will. In short, that reading led to a very irate family discussion after the lawyer informed the rest of my grandparents' children and their grandchildren that I would be inheriting the entire cabin estate, along with a stipend for upkeep of the place that would last 30 years. Don't worry, the others received a hefty cash windfall, but I by far received the largest gift. I believe they also felt quite chided by the fact that Grandfather had arranged his own funeral and insisted upon a closed casket, despite the fact that he had passed from a simple heart attack. The closed casket had also been insisted of Grandmother's funeral as well, I was told. It was a very strange thing to say the least. With title to the cabin was handed to me a crisp new envelope with my grandfather's handwriting on the front. It simply said, Read immediately after you enter the cabin. I shrugged it off as a dying man's final attempt at parental authority and threw the envelope into the back seat of my Subaru. The road trip to the old place was much longer than my childhood memories had recalled. It involved three different mountain switchbacks and over 50 miles of driving on crude dirt road. Once I had arrived though, I was shocked at just how big the place really was. As kids, we tend to exaggerate everything in our thoughts and memories, but this place was truly more than I had thought I would be able to upkeep with my work schedule. When I stepped up to the familiar welcome home mat at the door, the unsettling sight of a dead raccoon that had been ripped to shreds by some kind of predator met me there. It was fairly fresh, so I simply grabbed it by the tail and tossed it into the west patch of woods. Once I opened the door, the familiar scent of cedar filled my olfactory senses and a true sense of real home overtook my emotions. I would give anything to have seen them as an adult, but my grandparents would always hold a special place in my soul. I slowly ascended the stairs towards the bedrooms on the second level and caught myself chuckling as I came to the conclusion that, although they were gone now, my grandparents' bedroom was still theirs and I would rather sleep in my old room. So I threw my luggage and the letter from grandfather on the bed lazily and headed back downstairs to check out the open living and kitchen area. The sensory overload that I experienced when I switched on the light that afternoon, it was overwhelming. It seems like Grandpa had been quite busy with his taxidermy skills, and as I began to inspect these animals, 
I noticed that both the grandfather had gotten increasingly better over the years, and that he had started mounting almost all these specimens as full-sized instead of the usual shoulders sticking out of the wall. I really did admire his work, but the most unusual part of it all was when I noticed nameplates under each mount that read names like you would label a pet with. I decided that today had been enough of an adventure to worry about it anymore though, and I made my way over to the freezer to thaw out some of those famous elk tenderloins that I knew grandfather would still have in stock. After dinner, I went to bed around 11 that night, and literally passed out within seconds of plopping myself into the bed. Around 12.07, I heard a loud bang downstairs. The house is old, so I quickly dismissed it and I shut my eyes. But then I heard several loud bangs and what sounded like people walking up the stairs. When I opened the bedroom door, I was confronted by a 400-pound black bear that was immediately in my face sniffing me. Once he was finished smelling me over, he seemed sufficed and turned his head to me in a manner that conveyed that he wanted to be pet. At this point, I was certain that I was still asleep in bed, so I obliged the friendly bear but soon realized that I was not in a dream. This wasn't just any bear. This was the bear with the nameplate that said, Toby downstairs. More noises ensued downstairs, so I quite hesitantly tiptoed past Toby and began my slow descent. At this point, I wasn't terribly surprised to see that every game mount was fully animated and walking around the house besides the few shoulder-mounted deer and elk that looked quite downtrodden by their lack of mobility as they simply maneuvered their necks around as they hung on the wall. I began taking stock of the raccoons, bears, deer, elk, and squirrels running around when a dreadful thought overtook me. Where was the mountain lion with the name, Butthead? No sooner had that thought crossed my mind that I heard a low, resonating growl purr form behind the kitchen island that my back was turned towards. I barely managed to sidestep the big cat's lunge toward me, but he still managed to catch the corner of my shoulder with a pointed and razor-sharp claw. I let out a yelp and I booked it back upstairs. The big feline managed to bite my ankle before I forced the bedroom door shut and slid the deadbolt over that I didn't remember having in that room as a child. I also took obvious note of the overbuilt door that was now installed as the cat relentlessly clawed and rammed into it, fortunately but to no avail. It was then that I remembered the note. As I ripped the envelope open, I noticed a side A and a side B labeled on the paper. Side B said, If you didn't read this when I told you, so I quickly turned the page over to it. Dear Grandson, I had an afterthought once I wrote side A that you, being young and busy-minded, likely wouldn't read the letter in time. I surmise that Butthead is now glad at your door as you read this. At least I'm hoping you made it upstairs or else my plans have failed. Anyhow, there is a digital alarm system by your bedroom door. 
It possesses the control for opening the front door to the house remotely. Please hit it at your earliest convenience so that Butthead can do his night hunting in the yard. I'll be calm when you let him into the house at 4am. Once you've let him out, turn to side A. I immediately slammed the button to the front door and breathed a sigh of panicked relief as the gray cat responded to the digital notification downstairs that the door was opening and quickly scattered down the stairs. Once I got my breathing back under control, I remembered side A of the letter and began reading. Dear Miles, I first of all want to let you know just how much your grandmother and I had missed having you in our lives. We know it wasn't your choice, but it still broke our hearts not watching you grow up in person. By now, you've received the title of the house and the stipend. I have to be honest with you. The whole thing wasn't necessarily meant for you. You see, when I dug the foundation of the house 35 years ago, I discovered a motley assortment of animal bones that had been buried with strange emblems tied to them that were made out of stone and other bones. I thought it extremely odd, but also counted my lucky stars there weren't any actual Native American bones in there and I commenced with the build. It wasn't until that summer that you turned 11, when I had taken up taxidermy, that we discovered what was so special about the house. I should say your grandmother discovered the boggling elk in our living room at midnight while I was out working a power outage. When I came home that night, I was convinced that she had lost her marbles the way she came screaming at me as soon as I had opened the door but the bugling coming from the living room convinced me otherwise. You see, I had done three other shoulder mounts before that bull elk, and I had never been in the living room that late at night to notice that the deer too had been coming back to life. As you can imagine, I was quite guilt-stricken over what I had done to these poor, poor animals condemning them to being stuck every night for eternity. I decided then and there that I would never mount another animal. Well, that was until I found Toby on the side of the road, having been killed by a semi-truck, and I decided right then and there that if I did a full-body mount, the animal would be given a second chance at life. Now don't get me wrong, it took a while to tame good old Toby, but you'll soon discover that he's now a literal teddy bear. From then on, I made it my aim to give roadkill animals that I found a second chance at life. I did honestly still hunt, I sure do love that elk meat, but it was far less often, and every one of my taking game are also given the opportunity to live at night, provided that they stay within 300 feet of the house that I found. You also might have noticed that the square footage of the house has increased a little bit since you were a kid. Now you know why. Now, as to the primary reason you were given the title to the house, you need to carry on with me in this work. 
I think it's something quite spectacular and worth investing a lifetime into. I've amassed a thousand of notes and books on this subject, so you will take to it in no time. I can't force you into doing this, but if you should decide to carry on this strange business we found ourselves in, then feel free to talk to Grandma about it down the hall. She's waiting in our room for your decision and hoping you'll be able to get started right away on your first project. I'm currently being held in the cold storage locker in the basement. Love, Grandpa. I would like to take a minute to shout out another amazing podcast and today's sponsor, Generation Y, which can be found on the Wondery app. When it comes to true crime podcasts, Generation Y is a pioneer and my personal favorite. If you're obsessed with crime mysteries and unsolved murder cases, this show has it all. Hosts Aaron and Justin cover cases from all angles. They break down theories, dive deep into forensic evidence, and discuss their opinions on the most perplexing cases. In one recent episode, you'll hear the unusual case of Michelle and I writer. In 2017, in Corny, New York, Sergeant John McDivitt conducted a welfare check at Nyrider's house. Through the glass of the front door, he could see the silhouette of a woman and knew something terrible had happened. The story quickly turns into a crazy whodunit mystery, and it was an extremely entertaining listen. I highly recommend it. You can listen to the Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Thank you very much to Wondery for sponsoring today's podcast. I used to do wet work for the Russian military. Written by Mike Jesus. No one has ever questioned my loyalty. In return, I have never questioned my orders. For decades, my comrades and me have enacted the will of the Kremlin in places where the Kremlin could not be seen. We shed our colors, our names, our identity. We were all willing to die in complete anonymity for the greater good of the homeland. The weight of these sacrifices we have made were immeasurable, but necessary. We stopped this land from descending into chaos. We self-immolated ourselves at the altar of order and control, hoping that one day we would be remembered as heroes. They're all dead. Everyone who came with me to this cursed corner of the globe is dead, and I am left as the sole survivor of the horror we have witnessed. For nearly two decades, I have sat in this disgusting basement that smelled of death waiting for a word from my superiors. I have spent years waiting for some sort of debriefing, some sort of explanation for what had happened that fateful night. I expected someone to come and bring me back home. I expected proper treatment for my wounds, a pension, at least a quiet recognition of my loyalty, but none came. My superiors have abandoned me and left me to rot. I swore an oath to never speak of any of the operations that I was a part of. 
But what good is a loyal man's oath when he swears it to thieves and liars? Perhaps me writing this post will result in an unfortunate fall from a window, or a heart attack delivered by the tip of an umbrella. If that is the case, then so be it. Every man must die, and I would rather die by state-sponsored violence than because of what lingers beneath my bandages. I used to do wet work for the Russian military. I am the sole survivor of this event. And this is my story. It was the summer of 2002 and I had been dispatched beyond the new borders to Central Asia. As usual, everyone on the team was given a local passport and false documentation. If we were to be caught there, there would be no connection to a foreign government. For all intents and purposes, I belonged to a group of concerned local citizens who had access to high-grade military equipment. The area that we were meant to be concerned about was the building formerly known as the United People's Institute of Science. In its former glory, the United People's Institute of Science was one of the most revered Soviet scientific installations. The greatest minds of the East all gathered in a single underground facility and researched concepts that would help these Soviets get an upper hand in the war. The Institute always operated on a relatively self-governing basis. Yet, once the borders of our sphere of influence started to readjust in 1989, communication with the facility went completely dark. There were bigger problems than rogue scientific installations after the wall fell. When the Soviet Union finally collapsed, any paperwork concerning the Institute's existence went to rot, and archives that few would ever visit. Official oversight over the Institute ceased to exist. Yet the facility continued to operate in its own special way. The rumors were a mainstay of local gossip. Stories of insane scientists, of disappearances, of strange creatures roaming the woods. Nothing very alarming for an uneducated community next to a secret research facility. Aside from the institute, the only other notable things in the nearest city were a handful of factories and an old burned-down hotel. Bored people in desolate conditions tend to have colorful imaginations. For decades, the rumors were ignored. After 91, however, the talk about the Institute changed. For one, it was no longer referred to as the Institute. To the locals, the building was now known as Scientific Installations. The rumors, much like the name, changed in their form. The locals no longer spoke of vague monsters and ethereal plots. They spoke of specific missing people, of livestock showing up bloodless in the fields, of a specific part of the forest from which none returned. The locals' abstract stories hardened into matching descriptions. When digital cameras became cheap enough to be a hobbyist item, the photographs started to emerge. They were grainy and there were no guarantees that they weren't doctored. Yet at this point, these scientific installations started to catch the attention of the decision makers. The rumors caught the eye of those in power, yet on closer inspection, there was something more concerning about the Institute. According to the few official documents that could be unearthed, the United People's Institute of Science was not just a research facility. There were two missile silos attached to the structure as well. This so-called scientific installation was deemed a threat to national security. 
the channels from the provincial government pointed to a culture of drunkenness and ineptitude. We were brought to the city without any express permission from anyone noteworthy. Our mission was to assess and take control of the scientific installations. If we were to be caught or killed, we would forever be known as very concerned citizens. We were organized into a 12-man team. Our handler had set us up in the basement of a hospice. I didn't recognize any of the men present except for one, the Siberiac. Two years prior, we had both been a part of a messy operation near the Mongolian border where he had saved my life. I have met a lot of dangerous men throughout my career, but the Siberiac towered over them all, both in stature and in capacity for violence. The directives for our mission were vague at best, but knowing that the Siberian giant was on our side had eased my mind. I had seen him kill. As long as he was on the same side as me, I considered myself safe. Even though we were in the basement of the hospice, the cries of the sick still reached our ears. I joined the rest of the team in a friendly game of cards and some light drinking, using a radio to drown out the wails of the dying. The mood in the basement was reasonably calm. Everyone was blowing off steam before the mission, with one exception. The Siberiac did not join us for the card game or the vodka. He simply sat at the top of the stairs, listening to the pain of strangers. It's as if he knew he would soon join them in their torture. The United People's Institute of Science was a primarily subterranean structure with only a guardhouse and a small lobby, with an elevator shaft leading down. The plan was simple. Two men were to covertly make their way to the guardhouse, neutralize the sole member of security, and then the rest of the team was meant to advance towards the institute under the cover of night. The operation was a mess from the beginning. The two men chosen to deal with the security guard were young and indecisive, and the security guard himself acted erratically. Most civilians immediately cooperated at the sight of a rifle. This security guard did not. As soon as the two greenhorns approached, he started yelling about them having no authority here. Instead of surrendering, he picked up the phone and he called his supervisor. By the time they shot him, he had alerted the institute to trouble. The monotone voice of the commanding officer in our earpieces ordered us to advance on the facility. It was a pitch dark night, with not even a hint of the moon in the sky. And yet the night vision goggles turned the incomprehensible dark into a navigatable sea of grainy green. The institute was located in the middle of a dense forest, yet the land around the actual structure was completely barren. There was no cover. We were like heavily armed lambs moving towards a dead quiet slaughterhouse. An announcement of our arrival was not optimal, but the sort of work I was in rarely went according to plan. Robbed of the element of surprise, we moved on the Institute from opposing directions in two groups of five. I was in the back of the Eastern Formation with the Siberiac directly in front of me. The hulking giant offset any discomfort I had at the announcement of our arrival. I thought myself safe. As we moved across the dead ground, my earpiece sounded off with the commander's voice and the occasional whispered apology from the guardhouse group. No movement from the Institute. For a moment, I found myself experiencing something akin to calmness. 
And then I heard a voice in my earpiece that didn't belong there. Tovarishki, turn back. A female voice, a calm voice, a motherly voice. Tovarishki, turn back or, in the name of the Institute, I will be forced to take drastic action. No one stopped. The fact that an outsider was able to speak on our frequency was highly unusual, but we knew better than to pay attention to orders that didn't come from our superior. We moved to the backup frequency, but the voice followed, and its tone had changed. She said in a voice so cold and sharp that it made even the Siberian before me twitch. If this is your last warning, if you keep approaching, you will find a fate worse than death. Turn back and never return. I have never disobeyed an order. I take pride in the fact that I am a reliable member of the armed forces. But that voice, there is something unearthly in it. Something horribly malicious that I cannot comprehend. My rifle started to shake. My steps became uneasy. For the first time since I had enlisted, I found myself truly disturbed. I ripped my earpiece out. Even now as I write this, I cannot explain what I thought becoming deaf to the voice would achieve. I ripped out my earpiece in blind instinct, in a frenzied attempt to retreat from that which poisoned my soul with fear. The Siberia kept on moving. In the field of chorus green, I could see the rest of the troop progressing as well. I was only a meter or two behind the formation, but it was clear I was the only one who had lost their composure. With shame in my heart, I tried to catch up with the rest of the group. Tovarishki. A dark, horrid voice boomed through my head. You have been warned. You have refused to see reason. Now you shall pay the price. My earpiece was out. It was as if the foreign voice had been lodged into my skull. Before my mind had even managed to properly register the psychic intrusion, there was something else to contend with. The ground beneath us shook. The earth swelled in a dark circle around the institute and it caved in. I saw my comrades fall into a sudden ditch of murky water. My noise filled with the smell of an infected wound. Whatever liquid they had fallen into was potent with filth. If I had been standing behind the Siberiac, as I was meant to, I would have fallen as well. I would have ended up in that same horrid water as everyone else did. My moment of hesitation is the only reason why I survived that night. The Siberiac screamed. As terrified as I was, I quickly reached down and offered him a helping hand. The man had saved my life a couple years prior. It was only fitting that I would help him out of the ditch that he had fallen into. Getting the giant out of the water proved to be much more strenuous than expected. His weight was quite a burden to contend with and much like the rest of the team, he was thrashing around in the water, unable to stand up on his own. To help him out, I had to descend into the ditch myself and plant one foot into the water for leverage. This helped the Siberiac up, but as soon as my boots submerged in the water, I could understand what all of the thrashing was about. Just a bit of the dark water got into my boot, but the pain was instant. The liquid was cold, but the moment it soaked through my sock, it was as if I was standing on burning coals. The stench of sickness and the pain seized me so strongly that I nearly vomited. 
Yet I kept my composure and crawled out of the ditch along with the rest of my comrades. Our commander was yelling orders for us to advance in the facility, yet his orders were soon drowned out. You have angered forces which you cannot comprehend. You will feel the wrath of it. The doors of the facility flew open. The instinct to open fire came as quickly as the order did. Bright flashes broke through the world of green. The quiet forest filled with the sound of gunfire. Yet by the time our rifles went quiet, nothing had changed. We stood there in silence, facing down the cement building in the middle of a forest, with nothing but the echo of our guns to keep us company. And that's when I noticed that the Siberiac was shaking. One of his hands was off his weapon and scratching across his back. He wasn't the only one. The rest of the team, even those approaching the Institute from the opposite side were all clawing at their bodies. Weapons started to fall to the ground. The scratching amplified to manic fits. We were no longer a group of soldiers ready for combat. The Siberiac turned around and faced me. I have seen many things throughout my life. Things that would force most civilians into eternal sleepiness. Yet nothing compares to the sight of the Siberiac's face that night. His usually vacant gray eyes were filled to the brim with fear. His face was covered in dark red splotches that seemed like the aftermath of some horrid childhood accident. Out of those crimson marks came a writhing life. Worms. Frenzied worms with small black eyes stemmed from his face, pulling further and further out of his body. He opened his mouth to scream, but his jaw, it too was filled with the parasites. And the Siberiac was not the only one. All around me, my comrades were trying to rip away the foreign life crawling out of their skin. They tried to scream, yet all their wide-open mouths let out were whimpers and more of those writhing maggots. Tovarishki, you have not heeded my warnings and now you will pay the price. The voice boomed in my skull. The Institute is not to be trifled with. Something squeezed its way out of the doors of the Institute. I raised my rifle to fire, yet my eyes slipped to the ground. The thing was moving towards our group, but I couldn't. I just couldn't stand to look at it. It moved towards us, and I could see my comrades were suffering. I could see that they needed help, yet I couldn't face the horrid creature that left that cursed place. I ran. I ran as fast as I could to save my life. Flesh, bone, blood. As I looked over my shoulder, I couldn't tell where the remnants of my comrades ended and where the beast began. I ran blindly into the forest, hoping that whatever was doing this to my brothers at arms wouldn't follow me. It didn't. Yet as my struggling breath reached its limits, another problem presented itself. Even though my body was shivering with adrenaline, the burning pain in my foot was starting to make itself known again. I hid next to a forest stream, with my rifle at the ready, and I kicked off my boot. Beneath my sock, a mess of life squirmed. The worms. It was these same exact worms that had consumed the Siberiac just moments before. They were consuming my foot and slowly spreading towards my calf. Instinct. The same instinct that forced me to rip out my earpiece was now driving me to act. I found a piece of wood by the stream, and I fished out my combat knife. 
I placed the wood in my mouth and I bit down. I knew what I had to do. But I also knew that if the beast that was lurking by these scientific installations would hear me, all of my pain would be worthless. The details of how I made my way back to the hospice escaped me. My handler kept me on enough morphine for the whole month after the mission to stay a distant memory. I loosely recall pulling my body through the jagged gravel of a road towards the city. I loosely recall being loaded into the back of a car. I loosely recall the surgery to amputate the rest of my leg. What I do remember with absolute clarity is my handler thanking me for my service and asking me to stay put until someone comes to retrieve me. That was almost two decades ago. I recall that promise with sharp memory because I have thought about it each and every night. I have been loyal. I have waited. I have even tried to establish contact with the local embassy. Yet no one will claim me. For years, I have been a man living in the basement of a hospice, praying that I will not have to die here. Yet those illusions are starting to leave me. Beneath my bandages, I can feel it again. The worms. The amputation has only slowed their progress. Beneath my bandages, I can feel them wriggling again. They have come to finish what they started during that fateful day. I started working at a hospital. Today, I found a list of rules written by Mr. Horror269. Welcome to the hospital, Mrs. Smith said. You are now a surgeon. I wanted to work at a hospital since I was a kid. I always liked the idea of saving lives, and now my dreams came true. I got in the car and went to the hospital. It was a big old building. When I entered, I talked to the receptionist. Hello, my name is John, and I am the new surgeon. Okay, she said. I'll take you to the manager, Mrs. Smith. The manager was a tall, middle-aged woman. Hey, I'm John. I introduced myself. Well, hello, John, she said. Your job will be very important. You will be saving lives. Let me show you the operating room. The operating room was a big, modern-looking room with a large operating table and a lot of equipment. When I had finished up talking to Mrs. Smith, she gave me the key. This is the key to your locker. The lockers are in the next room over. I then went to the locker room. When I opened my locker, I saw an envelope with my name on it. I opened it, and inside was a paper list. It said, Rules to survive the night shift. Rule number one. Between 7pm and 9pm, don't go to the operating room. There will be no patients. If you hear voices coming from the room, don't go in. They want you to join them. Rule number two. 
If they bring in an old man with his guts falling out, you must say, I can't help you, sir, and go to the first floor. Rule number three. Between 9pm and 11pm, stay on the reception. Rule number four. Don't look out of the window. If you hear crying, ignore it. Rule number five. Make sure that all doors are closed at 11pm. If you forget it, it'll be too late. Rule number six. You can then sleep until 11.30pm. Rule number seven. At exactly 11.30pm, go to the manager's office. If you see a light coming from the operating room, run. Go to the restroom on the third floor and close the doors behind you. You will hear banging at the door. Ignore it. When the banging stops, you are safe to go. Rule number eight. Go to the x-ray room. If you hear beeping, put radiation shielding on immediately. The radiation is very dangerous. There should be a patient. Take him to the operating room. He received a dangerous dose of radiation. Take his clothing off and inject him with the blue syringe. Don't use the green one. And then take him to the reception. He is then free to go. Rule number nine. Exactly at midnight, a deathly sick patient will come. Ignore him and stay away from him. It's a lot more than just bad. It's worse and it's contagious. Rule number 10. Go to the manager's office and hide. He will come and he will be searching for you. And then he will disappear at once. Don't touch him. You don't want to infect yourself. He will decompose until the morning. Rule number 11. Do not answer any phone calls. Rule number 12. If you hear your wife's voice, don't follow it. It isn't her. You know that she's dead. Rule number 13. Don't touch the blue pills. They can cure disease, but they must remain a secret. The world isn't ready for them yet. Rule number 14. When you finish all this, go to the basement, and there will be a big metal door. Enter the passcode. 2243233 and the doors will open. Go inside and go to the stairs and then go down and enter the first room on your left. It'll be a secret laboratory. Don't feed the creatures inside of the tanks. Instead, look through the microscopes. There will be samples of all the diseases that currently exist. Be careful not to infect yourself. Drop liquid from the green syringe on each sample, and the samples will begin to mutate. There should be the cage with mice on the table. Inject each mouse with one of the samples, and write down the results, but be careful. They can bite. Enter the next room, and there should be an alien body. Don't touch it, it's also infected. Climb with the ladder to the first floor. Rule number 15. If there is a receptionist, you must tell her that you just went to check something. Rule number 16. Go to the operation room and lay on the bed. You may feel pain, but nothing will be happening to you. Pretend that you are asleep. 
They think poison is for anesthesia. If they see that you're awake, they will give you it. Rule number 17. Don't listen to the voices. They don't exist. It's all your imagination. Believe me. Rule number 18. If you see a man in a black suit, take him to the operating room and cut him open. There will be a scalpel in his body. Take it out. When he wakes up, you must tell him, I'm sorry that I forgot the scalpel inside your body last time. He will thank you and go. When you finish all the rules, take the green pill. Then go to the parking lot and wait until someone comes to take you home. If the individual who comes to pick you up has a car that's black, don't enter it. Wait for the next one. Follow the rules and stay safe. Mrs. Smith I couldn't believe it. I thought that it was a joke. I went to the operating room and almost puked. On the operating table was a man laying cut open. All his organs were out on the floor. And there was a man with a knife standing beside the table. I quickly closed the door and ran to the elevator. I wanted to go home, but the elevator fell. Luckily, these safety systems worked and I was able to get out. And I went to the reception. Suddenly, I heard crying outside of the window. I almost looked when I remembered rule number four. Don't look out the window. If you hear crying, ignore it. I almost broke another rule. I thought to myself, I gotta be more careful next time. I looked at the clock. It said 11 p.m. I recalled rule number five. Make sure all the doors are closed at 11 p.m. If you forget it, it'll be too late. And I quickly closed all the doors. I set my alarm clock at 11.30 p.m., as it said in rule number six. Before I fell asleep, I wrote down rule number seven. At exactly 11.30 p.m., go to the manager's office. If you see a light coming from the operating room, run. Go to the restroom on the third floor and close the doors behind you. You will hear banging at the door. Ignore it. When the banging stops, you are safe to go. I woke up to the sound of an alarm clock. I went to the manager's office. Suddenly, I heard the sound of footsteps behind me. I looked back and saw the operating room door open and there was a light coming from it. Something was coming out of it and it was heading my way. I quickly ran up the stairs to the third floor. I almost fell and caught a glimpse of the thing that was following me. Its face was all messed up and there were worms falling from it. It was holding a scalpel and it said, Time to open you up. I ran into the restroom and shut the door. It was banging at the door. But suddenly the banging stopped. I got out. And I remembered rule number eight. Go to the x-ray room. If you hear beeping, put radiation shielding on immediately. The radiation is very dangerous. There should be a patient. Take him to the operating room. He received a dangerous dose of radiation. Take off his clothes and inject him with the blue syringe. Don't use the green one. And then take him to the reception. He is then free to go. I went to the x-ray room. Suddenly, I heard a beeping sound, but I couldn't find any shielding. I went out. 
I really hope I wasn't exposed to any radiation. I continued as rule number nine said. Rule number nine, exactly at midnight, a sickly patient will come. Ignore him and stay away from him. He's a lot worse off than what he looks like. And it's also contagious. I saw a young man on the reception, and he said that I must help him, but I just ignored him. I remembered a rule number 10. Hide in the manager's office. He came and he searched for me, but then he disappeared. At this point, I was feeling tired and my skin was burned. I started to taste metal. I immediately recognized the signs of radiation poisoning, but it was time to follow rule 14. When you finish all of this and go to the basement, there will be a big metal door. Enter the passcode, 2243233, and the doors will open. Go inside, go to the stairs and go down. Enter the first room on your left. It'll be a secret laboratory. Whatever you do, don't feed the creatures inside of the tanks. Instead, just look through the microscopes. There will be samples of all the diseases that currently exist. Be careful not to get infected. Drop liquid from the green syringe onto each sample, and the samples will mutate. There should be the cage with mice on the table. Inject each mouse with one of the samples. Write down the results. But be careful, they can bite. Enter the next room. There should be an alien body. Don't touch it, it's infected. But climb up the ladder to the first floor. I went to the basement and I found the door. I entered the passcode. 2243233. And then I went inside. I went to the laboratory. I could see blisters on my skin. But I fought through and kept going. There were tanks with creatures that should not exist. I looked through the microscopes. There were diseases that I had never even seen or heard of. My skin started peeling, and my breathing became harder. I dropped the liquid on the samples, and then I injected it into the mice. They grew spider legs, human ears, and their heads fell off, and they got lizard-like skin. I wrote down the results quickly. At this point, I could barely walk, so I entered the next room. There was an alien body, and it was tall and green. There was slime littering all the floors. Suddenly, I felt a sharp pain in my chest, and I fell to the floor. I started coughing up blood. The radiation from the x-ray room was finally getting me. But then I saw a cabinet. I opened it, and inside were boxes full of pills. I looked at the boxes and I found one that said, Radiation Illness Cure. I grabbed it and I opened it. I took out the pill with shaky hands and I lifted it up to my mouth. But I couldn't do it. I dropped it. My skin was peeling off and my bones were starting to show. My eyes were bursting and I was losing my vision. And then my heart stopped. I woke up from a horrible nightmare. I was covered in sweat, it had all seemed so real. I did a quick check of my skin. It seemed okay. Didn't seem to be affected from any radiation. It was all only a dream. 
it wasn't real. I was tired, but it was my first day on my new job. Today, I became a surgeon. I ate breakfast, brushed my teeth, and dressed up. Got to the car, and I drove to the hospital. I entered. The receptionist had called me. She gave me an envelope and said, Welcome to your new job. Don't forget to read the rules if you want to stay safe. I'll take you to the manager. We have another one of my favorite sponsors in the podcast today. Shudder. Shudder is essentially the horror version of Netflix. And man, it delivers on every front you could possibly imagine. What's better on a chilly night than curling up in front of the TV for a great, scary movie? And nobody has a better collection of horror, thriller, and the supernatural than Shudder, the best streaming service for horror. Shudder is the exclusive home for found footage hit, VHS and 94, a Shudder original. Binge the latest seasons of Creepshow and Slasher, both exclusively on Shudder. Catch new episodes of The Drag Competition Show, The Blade Brothers Dragula, and new docuseries Behind the Monsters, on the origins and pop culture dominance of your favorite modern movie monsters. And new exclusives this month include Nicolas Cage in Prisoners of the Ghostland, and the killer shark movie Great White. That's just a taste of the amazing collection available on Shudder. And you can get access to all this great content for just $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. That's a steal in my book. Especially considering there are new supernatural terrors, edge-of-your-seat thrillers, and shocking horrors added every single week. And you can stream all of these spooky flicks directly to any of your favorite devices. What's not to love? Just earlier today, I was watching Creepshow on my iPad while drinking a nice hot cocoa. Talk about a relaxing experience. Try Shudder free for 30 days by going to Shudder.com and using promo code MrCreeps. That's Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-R.com. Promo code MrCreeps. A big thanks to Shudder for sponsoring today's podcast. My friends and I used to explore abandoned buildings, written by Veristal. I had started running with the Marauders when I was 13. I know the name makes us sound like D&D nerds trying to come up with a name for a street gang, and maybe in some ways it wasn't too far from the truth. The four of us, Diego, Jamie, Freddie, and me, we were giant nerds. And if I'm being honest, role-playing games in Diego's mom's basement was a part of what brought us together in the first place and made us a group instead of four disparate kids who were bored, lonely, and wanted to have fun and excitement in their lives. By the time we jokingly started calling ourselves the Marauders, we were all 14 or 15, that restless age where you have more energy and curiosity than you have ways of expending or satisfying either. We started to look for fresh hobbies and thrills, new things to explore, and over the course of one long summer of rambling around the more distant and desolate regions of our town, we found ourselves going places we technically shouldn't have. 
I say technically because we weren't hurting anything. We weren't bad kids. And none of us had the urge to break or steal stuff. We were urban explorers. If you want to call our town urban. And we're technically trespassers, sure. But we never ran into real danger or trouble beyond a cop stopping us a couple of times and making us head back home. By college, things were starting to change. And Diego and me were both at state while Jamie and Freddie had stayed at the local junior college. None of us minded that much. They came up most weekends and by the second month of our freshman year, we were exploring part of a true city on a regular basis. We did get into a few scrapes then. Freddie got bit by a dog, and I got stuck between two pipes and an old hospital's utility tunnel for over three hours while Diego went to go get something to break me free. Yeah, I know I said we don't ever break anything, but there are exceptions to every rule. Except those exceptions started becoming more regular as time went on. A few new people would come and go at times, most of them tourists, but a couple of Jamie's friends kept coming back. And it didn't take long to figure out it was going to be a problem. They were reckless, making too much noise and doing stuff that well. I always suspected it was to try and impress Jamie, the only girl in the group. But whatever their reasons, I could see the problems coming. And then one day, the bigger, dumber of the two, I think his name was Corey, fell into a piece of rusty metal and had to be carried from the lawnmower plant that we were checking out. We got him to the hospital and he made it, but his parents made enough of a stink that we got questioned by the cops and the school administration put me and Diego on to academic probation. After that, we still went exploring, but only the four of us, and only when all four of us could go. We made plans to continue after college, but as it happens with so many things, life had gotten in the way. The few times that we've gotten back together, it was to eat dinner and catch up, or maybe go camping for a weekend. Diego and Jamie still talked about checking out some dark corner of a decaying city, but the suggestion was always met with enthusiastic but vague approval that quickly petered into laughter or changing the subject. Because the truth was, I was outgrowing the need to skulk around in some shattered ruin, pretending that I was invading some monster's lair. I think we all were to some extent, but that wasn't the thing that scared us so much as it being a symptom of the thing we were really afraid of. That we were also outgrowing each other. We never said it aloud, of course, but I could already see the years stretching out ahead. Diego and Jamie might stay together long enough to actually get married, and all of us would get more and more preoccupied with our work and our own families, and a new set of friends that fit our new, grown-up lives. It was sad and a little creepy, like a bug or a snake molting and leaving its old self behind, but I could see it happening already. The visits would become phone calls and then texts and emails until finally... We realized that we hadn't actually talked to each other in a few months or even years. I was actually thinking about that the day Jamie had called me, and when I had heard her voice, I felt a surge of joy, my mind already banishing the idea that we would all drift so far apart. And then I heard what she was saying. Jamie, what? Say that again. She was emotional, maybe even crying, 
and I hadn't been paying enough attention the first time. Maybe I had heard her wrong. Diego, he's gone. He's missing. I frowned as I gripped the phone harder. Gone how? Where did he go missing at? Her voice sounded thin and watery through the phone. He went exploring two nights ago. By himself, I know it's a bad idea and I told him that. Told him to put it off until the next time we were all together. That we would really go, you know. I felt my mouth going dry. Where did he go? Somewhere in town? No, not this time. He goes on all these message boards, some for infiltrations, some just weird stuff, I don't know. He had heard about this abandoned sanitarium upstate, like in the middle of nowhere. Said he had read about a couple of different places, and at first, he didn't think that it was even real. But then he saw a posting where someone had been up there back in the, like, the 80s or 90s maybe. He showed me a couple of pictures and, I mean it looked cool. All creepy and abandoned, but not safe. Part of it was burned down, and... Jamie, honey, what happened? Did he make it up there? Yeah, he did, or I'm pretty sure he did. He called when he was parking, and he thought that it was a couple of miles up the road. He... he sounded nervous, Mac. Like, actually nervous, and you know how he is. Nothing ever scares him. But what did he say? Like, did he say specifically what was wrong? Um, he said the trees were weird. Saw a lot of moss or silk or something in them. And he thought that he had heard something. But he didn't tell me what. I asked him to come home, but he said that he had to find it first. Just to find it and take a few pictures and he would be home before I knew it. But he never came home. I can't track his phone and he doesn't answer. Have you called the cops? No, not yet. Diego's job is a fed job, yeah. I don't want to call and tell the police that he's up there trespassing. If it's all a big mistake or a mix-up, get him in trouble for nothing. I waited all day yesterday, but when he still hadn't come back today, I decided that I needed to either call 911 or call you and Freddy. I mean, I'm glad you called, but... Freddy is only an hour away, and when he gets here... We're heading up to try to find him. If you want to come, just meet us in the area. It'll be faster than you driving down here first. If not, well, I understand that too. I just thought I... I just have to find him. I know, I... Yeah, just send me the directions. I'll start heading that way now. It took four hours to get down to the spot. Jamie had texted me. My hope had been that they would just wait for me to start looking. When I called to say that I was 30 minutes out, I could tell they were already on the move. She was saying something about a police car when I lost the call. I drove past what looked like the spot, going on down the road to where I saw a car parked at the edge of the trees. Based on the bumper stickers, I guessed it was Freddy's. Turning around to park beside it, two thoughts struck me. First was that I hadn't even known he had gotten a new car. And the second was that, I still hadn't seen any sign of the car Diego would have left behind. I tried texting Jamie. Are you in there? I was rusty at marauding, but I still knew better than to call while they were up there trespassing. I just hoped that she had had her phone on silent. If she got the text at all, 
After waiting a couple of minutes, I let out a sigh and got out, walking back up the road toward the gate that I had seen. As I went, I looked up at the trees. They were massive with a sense of age and permeance that was both impressive and intimidating, but they didn't seem that strange. And studying them in the fading afternoon light, I saw no signs of moss or webs or whatever. My pulse quickened as I drew near to the gate. It was a huge wrought iron gate hung between twin brick posts that were at least 10 feet tall. With chipped mortar and specks of rust on the ornate swirls of black metal, it did have the air of age if not abandonment, and the metal sign attached to the brick was so green with corrosion, it was hard to read until you got up right next to it. Heart pounding, I read out the words, my voice sounding strange and distant in my own ears. Welcome to Green Heart Home. We hope you enjoy your stay. Brick walls trailed away in both directions from the gate, and I had a moment of new dread at the thought of finding a way over it. Glancing back at the gate, I decided to try it, assuming that it was either locked or rusted shut. Instead, it swung open with a slight squeak, and holding my breath, I crept through, closing it behind me before stepping off the path that led up the hill to a hawking set of buildings set among stands of trees. I walked carefully through the denser trees and bushes that ran alongside the road, widening up to what looked like a massive manor house. My eyes darted between the path in front of me and the vast grounds further ahead. Everything was deathly silent. There were no signs of people, but there were no animal noises either. A rustle of a squirrel or a chirping bird's warning as I passed by underneath. It was strange. I thought that I remembered hearing ambient noises when I got out of my car, but here, I didn't even feel the breeze anymore. More importantly, I didn't see any sign of my friends. Digging out my phone, I decided to try another text, this time to Freddy. Hey, where are you at? I'm inside the first building. I stepped up to the corner of the building and crouched down even with no sign of anyone and standing in a growing pool of shadow. I still felt exposed. I was getting too old for this. We'd make a good effort to find Diego ourselves, but if we couldn't, then it was time to call the cops, job or no job. I was about to put my phone away again when it dinged in my hand. Crap. I fumbled to put it on silent and then glanced around before looking at the message with growing confusion. Who is this? Freddy, it's Mac. What the heck? Where are you? A pause and then... Oh, thank God, man. I told her that it couldn't be you. We're in the first big building now. Second floor, I think. I reread the message before replying. Told her who couldn't be me. What the heck? It was as I hit send that I saw movement out of the corner of my eye. A patrol car was silently gliding up the driveway, going past me without stopping. No, it did stop now. The front doors creaking as they both opened simultaneously, and two large figures stepped out. They were dressed like policemen, though I didn't see any particular city name on the side of the car, and their uniforms were dark and nondescript, aside from the two brightly shining silver badges. But all this faded into the background 
as I noticed something far stranger about them. They were twins. Chip, I don't know about you, but there's something sacred about a man's home. I could see the man who had gotten out of the passenger seat smiling across the hood of the driver, his head looking like a harshly carved block of mail and stone. His double inclined, his head in a slight nod. I know what you mean, champ. There's a certain sanctity that shouldn't be invaded. He turned and stared directly at me. A man's home is his castle, after all. Champ was already starting around the back of the car. Yes, indeed. Home is where they always have to. I turned and ran, weaving between overgrown bushes and unruly trees, as I headed to the far corner of the building. I could try to make a break for the woods surrounding the place, maybe climb the fence, but then what would happen to the others? It's better that I slip in, find them, and we all get out together. I had to be fast, though. I could hear branches breaking behind me as the cops pushed through the wall of green to pursue me. I finally reached the far end and turned to run along what I imagined was the back of the building. There might not be any doors or windows, much less any that were open. But wait, there was an open window right there. I figure it was how Jamie and Freddy had gotten in. Or maybe Diego. But regardless, it was a means of escape. So long that I could get in before they made the corner. Peering into the darkness of the window, I hesitated. I really had no idea what was in there. Rotten floors and mold or something worse. Shaking my head, I forced myself to start climbing through. There wasn't any time for hesitation. It was either run or get caught. And I still had enough of the old me left to know which option I preferred. When I had cleared the window, I eased down gently and crouched down, letting my eyes adjust to the interior murk of the place. It was a bedroom, and aside from the furniture looking dusty and the sheets and curtains looking faded and rotten from disuse, it didn't actually look that bad. Better yet, the door out into the hall was open and hanging from the knob was a small strand of dental floss. We had started using floss to mark places that we went back in college. It was easy to get turned around in the dark, and when we had bigger groups, we would split into smaller packs that could navigate different areas without overlapping too much. One would use a regular white and the other green mint. This was white and it looked new. Maybe a message from Freddy or Jamie that I was on the right trail. Stepping out into the hall, I tensed as I saw movement at the window that I had gone through. The twins were moving past, maybe out into the woods or maybe to a door because they knew exactly where I was. Either way, I needed to hurry and find the others before we were found. The hallway was wide and long but the murky light and thick air made every step feel more claustrophobic and oppressive. This place wasn't just old. We had been in plenty of old places and out of those, there had only been a couple that felt wrong. Dangerous beyond stepping on a snake or getting tetanus. I felt the hairs begin standing up on my neck as my scalp began to tingle. This was one of those places. I made it out to a large open area with hallways going off in several different directions. At first, I wasn't sure which way to go. But then I caught a glimpse of stairs at the far end of the hall to my right. 
I started in that direction and then hesitated. Something wasn't right with this. I could see all the way down the hall, but it was like looking down a gun barrel. The hard edges of the hallway had been blurred away, as though something had built up in the corners, turning a rectangle into an oval. Shaking my head, I started forward. What did it matter? I needed to find them, and he said that they were upstairs. Whatever rot or nastiness was in this place, I would just try to avoid touching it and get through to the stairs quickly. Taking out my pocket flashlight, I started forward again, shining my light as I went. What was that? Branches, dead vines maybe. As I walked into the hallway proper, I couldn't help but reach out and touch one of the thick gray lines that swirled around the floor, the ceilings, and the walls. My tongue grew fat on my mouth as I recognized the texture and saw the strand gleam in the glow of my light. It was a web. Shuddering, I yanked my hand back. My fingers steamed slightly where they had touched the silk. I had the idea of it falling on me, burning and sticking and wrapping me tighter and tighter until... But no, I had made it to the stairs and everything looked better here. Glancing behind me for some kind of stealthy movement, I forced myself to take a breath. It wasn't a big deal. I was freaking out over nothing and yeah... I've never seen a web like that, but weird stuff happens, right? I just needed to find them and get us out. I crept up the stairs, wincing at every small creak as I went, my eyes and ears straining for any sign of my friends or anything that might be after us. The top of the stairs led to another long hallway, this one mercifully clear of anything other than a little dust. In fact... It actually looked cleaner and in better repair than the downstairs, with a series of closed doors that opened without complaint. Onto more bedrooms that were unremarkable except for how well maintained they seemed. I was opening the door to the fifth room when I sucked in a breath. This wasn't a bedroom at all. It was an ultra-modern atrium that seemed like part of an entirely different building. Everything was clean and in order with plastic and chrome and marble married with big computer screens and furniture that made the place look like the lobby of some trendy business. Except all of that was impossible. This was all too big and why would it be here at all? Most of the lights were off but there is no feeling of disuse here. Just the lonely disquiet of being alone in a place when it was closed and lifeless. I whispered for Jamie and Freddy and then for Diego but my words seemed to fall flat in the dead air. Shivering, I stepped back out and shut the door. Take you in. Letting out a scream, I spun around to see Chip and Champ filling up the hallway behind me. I started to back up, my hands held up in front of me. Listen guys, this is all a misunderstanding. I'm just looking for my friends. We're not here to steal or hurt anything. I just need to put my friends and leave, okay? They both started to chuckle, hard eyes boring into me as they slowly walked forward, keeping pace with my retreat. Guys, please, we just want to go home. They stopped at this, their expressions both brightening in a mirrored mockery of mirth before darkening again. Home. Mac, you are already home. The twins lunged forward then, and as I twisted around, I broke into a full run away from them. 
I was fast, but they were faster, and they would catch me before the hallway gave out. Taking a risk, I suddenly juked into a door, twisting the knob and flying through it before slamming it shut on their grinning faces. There was a brief hammering on it on the other side, and then nothing. Twisting the small lock below the knob, I turned around and stared into a nightmare. It wasn't a room, large or small. It was a cave. Somehow on the second floor of this old building, I had walked into a cave of sorts. Walls of rough black stone curved away from me in every direction. Shadows filling the voids like pools of ink speckled with mounds of gray and white. I already knew what they were, I think, but I still had to go and look. I had to see for myself. The first one was Diego, sallow and unconscious, but clearly alive. The old man next to him wasn't so lucky. He looked ready to crumble to powder. Both of them suspended in thick strands of web against a rocky wall. I could feel my mind edging toward some kind of abyss. A shutdown reserved for when things got too bad too fast. I couldn't let that happen. If I did, I wouldn't make it. None of us would. We would all be stuck in this place. Looking around for something to cut the webbing, I... Jamie and Freddy were against the far wall. They looked as drained as Diego, but again, they were alive and looked like they had been in high school. As I stepped closer, Freddy looked up, staring at me silently. My phone buzzed in my pocket. We found our way back. We're all home again. Freddy's eyes shifted from mine to something deeper in the cave. Trembling, I shined my light back there and found another mound. My breath caught on my throat as I stepped back there. It, it didn't make any sense. The face wrapped in a gray webbing was younger, but there was no denying it. It was me. I turned back to Freddy. We've, we've been here before, haven't we? After a moment, my phone buzzed. Yeah, I remember it now. Senior year, Diego's idea. I thought I remembered it too, but I wasn't sure. And how was any of this happening? Why did we come back? Why would he come back? A buzz. He didn't. We didn't. I was shaking hard now, looking back to this other me, this twin. It was alive and I could see it breathing, but it couldn't be me. And what was in its hand? What the heck was glowing in its hand? Buzz. You know what it is. It's your phone. He's writing all of this down. That's what they want. What they feed on. Stories. Our stories. Tears in the corner of my eyes. I wanted to back away, but I couldn't move. Even taking a single straining step was impossible. At least until I tried moving toward that other me. It opened its eyes and it stared at me. A thin, pale tongue, sneaking out from between cracked lips. I fought an urge to lift my hand to its face and I fought it. A buzz. We never left. And now we're back to feed them stories. To feed us, well, 
It's best to just let it happen. Grimacing, I grabbed my arm, trying to force it back down to my side. This is all insane. This isn't real. I waited for a buzz, but there was none. And when I looked up, it was into my own hungry gaze. Gasping, I jerked my hand forward and snatched the phone out of the other's webbed grasp. My fingers burned, but I ignored it. The screen was dirty but legible in the dark, and as I scrolled up and back down, I felt my bowels begin to loosen. He had written all of this, even this that you're reading now. He had written it all. My other arm free of encumbrance, it had drifted up to my twin's face while I was distracted. I let out a howl when he started biting my fingers, but it was more surprise than pain. It didn't hurt, but only a little. I could feel cool and then cold washing over me like a kind of electricity, making me sad and excited at the same time. I was going home, wasn't I? And maybe later I would go out again, to live another story, to feed the things that lived here. To feed myself so I wasn't so cold and alone and hungry in the dark. The more the other me chewed, the faster he went, and it wasn't long before I could feel myself being pulled into his mouth, twisted and warped to fit fairly pouring into his mouth with such speed and force that I almost dropped the phone as I read these last few words and wrote one parting sentence of my own. I hit post. The Disciple of God Written by Mr. Creepy J Young Abraham, awake for I have chosen you and you alone. My eyelids fluttered as the sun gently beat down on them. I lay flat on the ground, my neck and legs being gently tickled from behind by soft grass. I clambered to my feet in a dazed mess, squinting as I surveilled the foreign landscape around me. A gentle afternoon breeze danced between the lively grass blades, Trees stood in mighty unison along the field's edge, and a faint roar of ocean waves wafting up from the rocky cliff's edge. And there, at the peak of a hill on the edge, an elegant church stood towering over the tallest trees in its own monolithic glory. It was magnificent, a scene crafted by the hands of an artist, by the hands of God, Mesmerizing to the eyes and addictive to the mind, I was seduced by the siren song, brought to tears over the heavenly beauty. I was unworthy. Surely this sight is too divine for dirtied eyes like mine, I murmured to myself, the breeze rising to a strong draft. Ominous clouds swirling above the chapel, congealing into throbbing static bulbs. Surely, I stand unworthy of such blessings, drenched in the stench of sin and the same. 
I cried to the heavens, my voice carried by the howling winds drifting off into these stormy ocean waves. Almost feeding off of my words, the clouds only grew larger, threatening to carry me off with its howling winds. Surely this is a divine joke, a punishment for my hubris on earth, my final atonement for my crimes. As the words left my mouth, I crumpled to the ground in a depressive mess. The gale grew into a thunderous tempest, viciously twisting and turning within itself. I raised my head towards the amalgamation of clouds and I looked deep into them, deep into myself. And there in the clouds of my soul, I saw him. I saw God. In an endless abyss, he appeared before me. Heads of the world, beasts, birds and fish alike protruded from him, all crying, chirping and howling in shared agony. The ball of meat convulsed and squirmed, almost tearing itself apart from the inside as the animals tried to escape from their prison. Fear me not, my child. The heads of the animals spoke together, their voices combining into an angelic tone. We chose you and only you, young Abraham. The voice reassured me. Choose me for what? What could I offer to God? Who is all? I cried out, tears streaming down my face. The voice simply laughed the question back at me, the heads all yipping and cackling to each other. We chose you. You need not know more, mortal. Come to us and receive our blessing. They finished, fading into the abyss as quickly as they came. There were no more words to be shared. I understood my purpose and where to find him. The grand church on the hill shall have my answers. I blinked my eyes and was back in the field again, only this time soaring far above it. From the eyes of an eagle, I was shown the landscape in its natural awe. The storm had passed and the sun shined once more on the flowery fields and swaying trees of God's home. The bird took me through the winding forest pass, through the rocky outlooks, through the shady hamlet that I called home, and to the shack where I slept. I awoke in cold sweats, the beads dripping down and off my head, soaking the dirtied rags that I slept on. My hair sloshed over my face as I climbed out of bed. Could that have just been a dream? It all felt so real. I refused to believe that it wasn't. I didn't have a dream, but it must have been a vision instead. I had to keep faith in that, like the faith that I had in him. God spoke to me. What more proof did I need? Before the morning sun could smile over the small town again, I was already long on my pilgrimage to the Holy Lands. With a rucksack against my back and a thick brown leather cloak covering my body, I trotted off into the forest that I had seen while on the wings of the bird. I hardly thought about the length of the trip or the hardships that I might face along the way. I just held on to the hope that he would guide and shield me through the danger ahead. I pressed on into the dark and foreboding treeline, taking my first steps towards enlightenment and last steps of my lowly life as a mere street rat and thief. I was on a mission to become the voice of God in this world, the Messiah of divine justice, 
the crux of truth. Only a week into the journey did my hurried and weak preparations catch up to me. Starving, dehydrated, and exhausted, I was reduced to a snail's pace as I barely managed to stay conscious in the waking hours of the day. I walked almost non-stop since I had begun, blindly following the path that I had taken once before. My measly rations of dried meat and impure water had long been gobbled up. I was running on air in zealous fervor. I looked up to the skies. Sunlight peeked back at me through the thick canopy. Oh Lord, mighty creator, please bless me with your touch so that I may continue living in your name. Give lift to my spirits and body. Let your ever so warm presence fill my soul with unrivaled incandescence yet again. I pleaded with the heavens, in hopes that he might hear my cries. The birds and cicadas chirped and sung. Deer and rodents danced through the forest. Yet no response came. Silence held me tight as my head fell unconscious onto the wet dirt. As I lay dying on the forest floor, I only dreamt of my past. The countless beatings I had endured. The people that I had wronged and those who had wronged me. I lived a life of selfishness, even killing and stealing to sate my desires. I did feel remorse for them, I truly did. But my desire to end those who still walked the earth after wronging me was still fiery. When I came to, the sun had already long since set. My lips cracked and bled, my head throbbed and dirt invaded my every orifice. Rolling to my side, I coughed up dark blood onto the dead leaves and grass around me. Bugs skittered all around me. A voice deep in the back of my head began to prod. Eat. Eat. You must eat. The word echoed in my mind, magnifying each time that I thought of the word. I must eat. Warily reaching my hand over, I plucked a June bug from the ground and popped it into my mouth. Its tiny legs kicked and squirmed, the final struggle before my teeth jumped down. Its organs and intestines swished around in my mouth, lubricating the bone-dry tissue. It was delicious. The warm, slushy mixture slid comfortably down my gullet. More. Eat more. The voice beckoned again, and so I ate more. One by one, I picked them up and crushed them between my molars. The sickly sweet crunch of pure ecstasy to my beaten brain. I ate until I couldn't, until my stomach refused anymore. As my taste buds savored each and every drop of their warm and nectary insides, my body felt strength yet again. I crawled to the tree, pressing my back against it and finally stumbled back upright. My pilgrimage could continue, but how much further could I go? How close was I? Would this reckless trip just lead to my own demise? Only God knew and he wasn't sharing. I pressed on through the forest, lest I turn back and be devoured by the jaws of nature. As I delved deeper into the woods, they started to change around me. It was slow at first, a dead tree here and there, maybe some animal carcasses but nothing like what it became. The towering trees, once proud and blooming, were now stripped of their leaves. Hue after hue, the grass changed too. At first, a beautiful green, then a vibrant crimson, 
and finally a somber dark purple radiated from the ground, imprinting its gloomy tinge upon the landscape around it. As I got deeper into this purple landscape, I felt his presence more and more. It wasn't like I could feel or hear him. I just knew as if a sixth sense tingled deep in my skull. The sky was cloudless. Moonlight sparkled on the landscape around me. I warily stepped out from the tree line and gazed upon the familiar field before me. The once colorful and vibrant scenery was now corrupted by the same purple plague the forest had, only far stronger in hue. The color almost twisted and mutated the surrounded fauna, corrupting their natural awe with malicious vigor. I fell on my knees, tears streaming down my cheeks. Where was the paradise that I had seen before? Where were the blossoming trees, the vibrant grass? Where was the holiness that made the land so pristine? I will have my answers. I whispered under my breath as I made my way up the hill and towards the now ruined remains of the Grand Church. The mighty walls had crumbled to dust and the wooden pews long rotted away, the entire building now reduced to rubble. Only a large hole the ladder lay in front of the altar. I approached it, a faint cold draft coming inside, and decided that this was the only way forward, and so... I climbed into that hole. I reached towards my rucksack, unlatching the lantern and lighting it. The bitter coldness enveloped me and I got my bearings. The small flame burned just bright enough to see around me but not enough to illuminate the long twisting corridors of stone that I would soon be lost in. The wooden support beams keeping the tunnel's integrity seemed at the end of the rope, rotten and eaten out. They barely managed to serve their purpose. At the end of the tunnel, it split into two more pathways. I picked one and kept following it until the same thing happened again. Each shaft stretched on for what felt like miles, always coming to a crossroads or split. I feared that I would wander until my sickly body couldn't move anymore. I was so close to the seat of God, and I was driven by that sole desire to keep moving forward. I was determined that I didn't care how many tunnels I had to go through, I would be with him yet again. After what felt like ages, I came into a large cavern. I raised my lantern to illuminate the stone walls around me. I had stumbled onto a makeshift place of worship down here in the depths. Crude pews of stone lined back to the entrance that I stood at. Curiously, I moved closer. There was a mural carved and crudely painted into the back wall behind the podium. It was an image of the field and church, except a version I hadn't seen before. Bodies lay scattering the fields, their blood soaking the grass a crimson red. Swords and pikes stuck up from the ground. Soldiers stuck at their tips. Along with the bodies, hulking abominations of flesh and limb scattered across the field. Everything protruded from every inch of the beast, all reaching and grabbing out towards the sky and ground. In the center, a man in a red set of armor stood triumphantly over the carcass of a larger creature, raising his sword at a mighty titan standing in the seas. It was both beautiful and horrifying, the image burning itself into my mind. What was this? 
some prophecy or the deranged work of madmen. These questions were left unanswered in my thoughts, only further reinforcing my curiosity and desire. I turned and left through the other entrance in the wall. I had to be close to him now. After another set of twisting tunnels, I eventually stepped out from the tight tunnels, and I was in a room with no visible walls or ceiling. It was all just darkness, all around me in every direction that I looked. You've made it. You kept us waiting quite long, young Abraham. The same disembodied voice from my vision spoke right behind me. I flicked around to be met by more darkness. The entrance that I just came through, now gone. I did what you wanted, my lord. Now please bestow upon me the reward you promised. I angrily shot it back, a hint of excitement sneaking up into my words. My demand was met with an eerie silence, before I was surrounded by booming laughter. I covered my ears and I fell to my knees, the cackling piercing through my hands and rattling my mind. Reward? Then what could that be? It jokingly asked. I was dumbstruck by the question. Why did I come here? What did I seek? One word came to my mind. Answers. I demand to know why you have summoned me. The voices stayed silent for a moment, perhaps contemplating my request. No, it's simple, really. We have chosen you to be our disciple, our acolyte, our prophet. The voice now returning to its usual tone. Prophet, I am but a lowly street rat. How could I be believed as the one chosen by God? I barked back, a hint of desperation in my voice. We shall give you strength and power, so that they are forced to listen. It assured me, the thought tickling my brain with excitement. Surely it was enticing for a man who had always been on the bottom of the food chain. However, there is but one more trial for you to face before such power can be bestowed. What is it, my mighty lord? What more do I have to do to appease your endless demands? I begged back. It is simple. You must drink the nectar of hell, the blood of a demon. They spoke with certainty. Demon, I blurted out, utterly shocked by the response. Yes, young Abraham, you must suckle on the ichor of the beast to become it. I reeled back, barely able to form my thoughts. God, why would you ask such a thing of me? Wouldn't that corrupt me with the sickness of it? The voice cackled at my words again. God, there is no God down here in these caves, Abraham. Only us, they said with a sickening glee. Then, who are you? I dared ask. We are the evil of man, the demons in the dark, and the shadow of the heavens. We are your, the God of corruption. The words clogged my ears, reverberating in my mind until I threw up. If there was anything in my stomach to throw up, that is. After I had come back to my senses, I thought upon the proposition that they had made again. I still seek power, if for all the wrong reasons. I was after revenge, revenge on those who had wronged me. Fine, I'll accept your offer, I whispered, making a deal with the devil. Well, perfect. We thought you might. Now walk forward and cut the beast open. 
Drink its blood for it alone should be the catalyst for your transformation. I did as I was told and walked through the darkness until I came upon the corpse of a titan. It lay curled in a tight ball, its back to me. I couldn't see its face, but I don't know if I wanted to. I cut along the monster's back with a knife from my waistband, the gray, leathery skin opening up with ease. Black ichor steadily streamed from the wound, leaking onto the floor with a sizzle. I reached my hands out and cupped some of the liquid and quickly slurped it, in fear that I would regret my decision if I waited too long. It was rancid, burning my mouth and throat as I choked it down. Yes, yes. Drink, my disciple, and become the demon you were always meant to be. Unimaginable pain shot through my body, driving me to the floor as I clenched my stomach. I was in pure agony, writhing in the floor as my organs were turned inside out. It felt as if someone was plucking my skin off my body, twisting and wringing me out of my juices. My skin peeled back in chunks across my body, revealing the muscle underneath. I curled into a ball, hopelessly rocking back and forth, vomiting on the floor next to me. Only my blood, it wasn't red anymore, but the black of the beast. I screamed until my vocal cords gave out. Red dripped from my eyes, which themselves were eagerly trying to rid themselves of me, almost popping out of my sockets. Little hands grabbed and squeezed my brain, picking pieces off and chipping away at my sanity. I was dying. Don't fret, young one. You shall be reborn again, this time in our image, not God's. That was the last thing I heard before I lost consciousness. Their tone, now just a sinister bellow. You have done well then for your efforts. You have your reward. Now awaken new and begin the next era of men. A millennium of pain and suffering, of death and destruction, of us. Go out and bring more followers, rebuild our home and worship us, for that is how we shall return again. When I awoke, I was in the field and this time, I was different. I felt invigorated. The aching pains of fatigue and hunger were replaced with warm contentment. I carefully inspected my body, the skin of it already turning a dull gray. Other than that, everything was seemingly the same. I picked a dead flower from the ground, carefully holding it in my hands, and as I held it, it began to change. The petal's stem thickened plump. The petals opened up and a human tongue protruded from where the bulb would have been. It wildly flickered in the air. I wasn't surprised in the least when it did, almost as if I knew it would happen. This was my blessing, to turn what God created into yours image. I looked back towards the church ruins, and then towards the forest where I had come from. I thank you for this blessing, my lord, and I shall do as you please. I will spread your dark influence across the world, for I am the disciple of your. My brother hunted a sacred deer, written by 02321. Recently, my little brother got into hunting. The woods and camping were never something I ever enjoyed. 
I was more of an under a pile of blankets with a book kind of guy. I wanted to support him in his new hobby, so I found myself saying that I would go with him and his wife on a weekend hunting trip. The day before we left, I felt a small cold coming on. By the time that we got our camp set up and went into the woods to start hunting, I had a fever. My face was flushed and the gray rainy weather was doing nothing to help it. My brother lent me a rifle even though I had never used one before. I decided early on that I wasn't going to shoot anything. The head cold was a good excuse to do so. I was against a tree, sniffling, feeling the effects of my fever, when my brother shot something. I heard his wife gasp after something big in the distance thudded to the ground. When I looked over at the both of them, I realized something was very wrong. Their faces pale and in shock of what had just happened. At first, I was convinced my brother accidentally shot someone. I looked off through the trees, trying to see what had collapsed, spotting a white shape through the bush. I started forwards, ready to help while the other two remained frozen to the spot. I arrived first to look at what my brother had shot, and to my relief, it was a deer. It was pure white, and I stood in awe of the beautiful coat of fur. I've never seen a white deer before, and a pang of pain came to my chest over the fact that it was dead. Finally, my brother and his wife walked over, still pale. What is it? He asked in a hushed tone. I looked at him, confused about the question for a few seconds. It's a deer. How could he not see that? Looking over to study it again, trying to see what he meant. When my eyes landed on the deer's face, I finally started to understand the gravity of the situation. I knew that it had antlers, but for the life of me, I can't remember what the face looked like. My memory was a blur of white. While staring right at it, my brain refused to actually see it. I took a few steps back then, scared out of my mind, and started to think my fever was messing up my head. That doesn't make any sense. I said in a low voice between some coughs. The deer in front of us was special, beyond special, and my brother had shot it. I looked at the wound that had killed the poor thing, to see pearl-shaded blood staining it. My stomach twisted in regret, and I felt like I was about to sob. I turned my head away, unable to keep looking at it. What should we do? His wife Kathy asked in a shaking voice. We shouldn't let the meat go to waste, my brother commented. I felt the entire forest fall silent at this comment. It was as if the air itself had stopped moving. It revolted me. It was terrible enough that this creature was dead, and my brother wanted to disrespect it even further. I knew that it was natural for animals to eat other ones, and logically, it would be a waste to not eat this deer. However, I just instinctively knew this creature was never meant to be eaten. It was something that existed outside of the natural order. 
Something powerful and yet fragile enough to be killed by a single bullet. Are you crazy? I hissed at him. Looking down at the white shape, I shook my feverish head. We'll let the forest take it. He reluctantly agreed. I put down the borrowed rifle and started to pick up fallen branches, my brother doing the same. Kathy gathered up wildflowers and in a short while, we had covered the deer as a sign of respect. We could never take back killing it, but we could show remorse. Without a word, we left the creature behind and with a heavy weight in our chest. When we arrived back into camp, I was feeling so ill, I turned to the moment that we got back. I bundled myself up in blankets and fell into a deep sleep, only waking to drink some water to ease my dry throat. My slight cold turned into a full-blown flu, and I was in no condition to walk out of the woods. When I woke again, it was morning but still gray and cold. How are you doing? Kathy asked me when I came out of my tent. Awful. What's the plan? It felt like my head was going to explode and my entire body was weak. She walked over and gave me a cup of hot tea, which was very much appreciated. We'll stick around until you feel better and the weather clears up. We should get you out of these woods, but it would nearly kill you if you had to walk through the rain to get to the truck. Just stay inside your tent and keep warm and dry. You brought some books, right? I nodded, sipping at my tea. That sounded like a good enough plan. I hoped my fever would only last another day and we could leave. What happened the day before really was freaking me out. The forest all around us felt hostile. The wind howled through the trees and I suppressed a shudder. I took my tea back inside my tent and got wrapped up in blankets once more, but not feeling any warmer. The wind kept howling outside the tent. I prayed my flimsy tent would hold if a storm came rolling in. The rest of the day, I drifted between trying to read and sleeping. I normally never got sick, so it was hitting me extra hard. When Kathy tried waking me up to eat some soup, I was in such a deep sleep that I didn't even stir, so she left me alone to offer later. The next day, I was feeling much better and starving from not eating much the past two days. I had my backpack in my tent, so I opened it to find the hidden snacks that I had stashed away. I had an entire box of oatmeal bars before getting outside of my tent. When I went outside, the rain had cleared up, but everything was still damp outside. Kathy was outside, trying to keep the fire going. Are you feeling any better? She asked me, looking and sounding exhausted. A bit. I think we could leave some time today if it doesn't start raining again. I offered. She looked between me and her tent, worried. Clearing her throat, she shook her head. James isn't feeling well. I think he must have caught your cold. Let's see how he's feeling in a few hours. I felt bad that my brother was sick and now suffering through what I just did. It would delay us leaving, but there was nothing we could do about it. I saw that we were out of firewood and I needed to get some air. Hey, I'll get us some wood. It'll give me something to do, too. I'll check on him in a few hours, make sure that he's been eating. Kathy gave me a grateful smile. From how bad she looked, I wondered if she had gotten sick, too. 
I left into the woods, trying my best to find anything that wasn't too damp to burn. I found some sticks hidden under leaves and logs that should be dry enough. I was the type to get lost easy, so I needed to stick close to camp. After I collected an armful of good enough wood, I was about ready to head back when something out of the corner of my eyes made me stop. On a bush was a few drips of shimmering liquid. I walked up to it to get a better look, not understanding what I was looking at. I was drawn away by the sound of retching off towards the camp. Forgetting about the strange liquid, I started back to check up on my brother and Kathy. When I had arrived back, the rain had started up again, making it too wet for us to start the fire back up anyway. Kathy was looking pale and chilled to the bone. I had wished the cold, damp weather would pass so we could finally leave. I started to wonder if I should just take my brother's truck and go get some help. My fever hadn't gone down entirely, and we had parked so far away. I feared that I would too get ill if I braved the hike through the woods. Is everything alright? I asked. I put the wood away, covering it with some plastic hoping for it to stay dry. Kathy looked at me, a worried expression on her face. Before she could answer, my brother came out of his tent. It should have been impossible, but he looked even paler than Kathy. His skin nearly void of any color. I decided then that I would try to get some help. We needed to get the heck out of these woods. James, give me your keys, please. I said holding out my hand for him to give me his truck keys from his pocket. He looked over at me, as if I was speaking a different language. Shaking his head, he took a sip of water from a flask that Kathy had handed to him. She looked scared stiff. James felt different. It was the way that he was moving and not really looking at us. No, just give me a few more hours of sleep, then we'll all go. I never should have given in. I slowly brought my hand back, trying to think of an argument. Truthfully, I was frightened to go into the woods alone, but just a few more hours. Then we wouldn't even have to pack up our gear, and we would just leave. James took Kathy's hand and they went back into their tent. Not being able to think of anything else to do, I went back into mine to get dry and warm. I was going to finish the last 100 pages of a book to give my brother time to sleep. I drifted off while I was reading. One moment, I had a book in my hand and the other, I was waking up in a pitch darkness. I sat up confused at what time it was. Slowly, my eyes adjusted and I could see a hint of light coming through the tent. Slipping back into the cold, damp outside world, I looked over to see a very weak fire burning. My brother stood just within the light. I opened my mouth to call out to him, but something felt wrong and I couldn't place it. The air was tense and my muscles started to lock up. Hearing me coming from the tent... My brother turned to look over at me. He still looked pale as death. His face was the same. But I just knew in that moment, I was no longer looking at my brother. He took a step towards me, an unknown purpose in his stride. I ran. Without any plan, I ran off into the woods, trying to get away from whatever he had become. 
I was only running for a few minutes when I saw the light of a fire between the trees. It was faint, but I ran towards it praying somebody would help. I didn't think anybody else was camping so close to us, and I was thankful for it. I ran into the clearing, but my blood froze in my veins. It was not a new campsite. It was ours. I just ran back around even though I was positive that I had ran straight. My brother stood by the dying coals, the orange light shining in his eyes. I ran again. It was dark and the woods were just a maze of trees. It was understandable that I had gotten turned around. A few more minutes of running and I came crashing into our campsite again. In a blind panic, I just kept going. No matter what direction I took, I would always end up running towards our camp. My brother standing, silently watching me attempting and failing to escape. When I couldn't run anymore, I collapsed, gasping for air. I didn't understand what was going on. All I knew was that I could no longer leave. Please, I begged the pale figure. It was far too late to save my brother, but if there was even a hint of him left, he would let me and Kathy leave. His face was going out of focus. For whatever reason, my brain was refusing to see what it truly looked like. Let me and Kathy leave. I sat on the cold ground, shaking in fear. Deep down, I knew my brother was changing into something beyond my understanding, simply because he had shot a strange deer. My suspicions, I could not bear to say out loud, were confirmed by him when he finally spoke in a rasping voice. I cannot let her go. After all, she ate some of it too. My stomach sank and I felt like I was going to be sick. Killing the white deer by accident could be forgiven, but cutting into its body to devour its flesh could not. The thing that was once my brother lunged at me. He grabbed me by the neck as I struggled, desperate to get free. I got as far as the dying fire pit before he held me still. His strength was far beyond my own. I kicked and screamed, trying to pry him away from me. I couldn't see his face clearly, but I saw his mouth. Oh god, whatever he became was something that no human should ever see. It opened wide with countless teeth shining in the dying firelight. He had turned into something so twisted because of his unforgivable sin. I was only saved because I thought, for a brief moment, I saw a white figure behind my brother urging me to fight. I had nothing to lose, so I reached over to the nearby coals, the fear causing me to ignore the pain of grabbing coals and ash to toss into the creature's eyes. He let out a scream of pain and let me go, and I wasted no time scrambling free, but paused at the edge of the camp. I watched in horrified fascination as the thing that was once my brother screamed and thrashed around. Sickening cracking sounds came from his body as he started to turn from a human form into something completely different. Twisted with long pale limbs, I couldn't stomach the sight. I almost couldn't stand the idea of leaving Kathy behind. She was either already dead, or turning into something else inside the tent and out of sight. I felt trapped. I knew if I left, I would end up back at the camp again. 
but off in the distance, I saw a hint of white through the trees, and I ran towards it. As I ran, I heard the monster I had left behind screaming at me to stay. This time, instead of looping back around, I noticed a hint of shimmering liquid on the ground and I followed it. Drop by drop, I kept going until my lungs felt like they were going to burst and my legs burned. The forest around me started to get lighter until I found myself running right into a snow-covered parking lot. I collapsed again, feeling weak in the snow soaked through my jeans. It wasn't the season for snow. The parking lot was right next to the ranger station. When I came running out exhausted, a ranger saw me and came outside to see what was going on. I couldn't keep myself awake until he got to me and I passed out in the slush. In the end, they never found James and Kathy. They found our abandoned campsite months ago and assumed all of us were done. I could never tell them what really happened because I don't know myself. I don't feel as if this was all the dream, or my mind just snapped. I'm certain that my brother is now something else out there inside the woods. I wonder why I was saved. What creature decided to show me the right way out? Was it the white deer, because I didn't need a part of it? Or did it want me to live so I could tell others about what had happened? Whatever reason it might be, I'm thankful for my life. If you're ever out hunting, make certain you know what you're about to shoot before you pull the trigger. Or else you might make a mistake that is going to change your life forever. At Halloween, I was caught in the middle of an unnatural rivalry, written by Mr. Mills of 45. Candy, laughter, scares ghosts and ghouls. Halloween is easily my favorite holiday of the year. It has all the things that I love most in life. Sweets, costumes, and the excuse to be someone else even if just for a night. Where fiction and reality can intertwine without it being weird. I'm only 13, but it seems to me like a lot of people in my school want to pretend like they're too old to trick-or-treat or something. It's the cool thing now to go to Halloween parties and talk to girls or whatever they actually do. But for me, trick-or-treating will always hold a special place in my heart. Luckily, I had two friends who shared the same opinion on the matter. Carter and Aaron. I hadn't known them all too long, only since the beginning of this current school year. But the three of us had gotten along pretty quick, and decided that we would all go out on the best night of the year together. None of us had cell phones yet, so we planned the whole thing at school during our lunch period. I stood in the bathroom of my house, finishing painting on my fake blood that ran underneath my fangs. Wearing a cheaply made fabric cape and fangs, a little bit of makeup, and some contacts and I was a full-on vampire. It was more effort than most people my age put into their costumes anyway. And Carter, who was definitely the biggest of us three, had chosen to go as a brute zombie. His clothes all tethered and ripped, while also having fake bits of blood and bone painted on his exposed skin. And then there was Aaron, who so desperately wanted to go as a swamp monster. We practically begged the guy to dress up as a werewolf, 
and complete the classic monster trio. But he refused. Dude, you can't be serious. You look like you just jumped in a bucket of slime and then called it a day. Carter teased, snickering at Aaron as he revealed his look for the night to come. Come on, my mom spent three hours on this. I don't want to hear you complaining. Aaron fired back, rolling his eyes at Carter. Three hours? Carter blares. Was she blindfolded the whole time? Alright, alright. I'm gonna get a headache from you guys before this night even begins. Let's just go out, get some candy, and have fun. I step in, continuing the work on my fake blood touch-up. I'm using a pillowcase. Aaron chimes in. I'm gonna fill this thing to the brim. A pillowcase? Carter replies quickly. I'm taking a freaking garbage bag. We discussed for a few minutes more, going on about the route that we would take and the types of candy that we wanted to score. I myself was more of a chocolate guru. Hershey's, Reese's, Snickers, and Three Musketeers. I wanted it all. Carter and Aaron mostly agreed with me, with the exception of Carter constantly reminding me that sour candy reigns supreme, even over chocolate. But everyone has their preferences, I guess. His opinion was still wrong, though. The three of us finished the remaining little touches on our costumes, grabbing our various candy bags and whatnot, before finally walking out the front door to the house and setting off into the lively environment that was my street on Halloween. It wasn't actually dark quite yet, although the sun was beginning to dim as it sat, leaving that perfect fall evening breeze to accompany the low light. Beautiful colored leaves blowing every which way. Our plan was to head over to the more upscaled and snobby part of town. Most people there would just leave out multiple bowls of full-size candy bars after a certain time, when they didn't feel like answering the door any longer, which was all the more fortunate for us. The only problem? Well, our area was poorly planned and structured quite strangely. Meaning that the shortest way to get to said snobby area was to cut through a near mile and a half long trail in the woods. People in my town always told urban legends and tales of creatures, ghouls and cryptids lurking in the woods. They definitely freaked me out as a small child for sure. But I was now old enough to understand that it was all nothing more than fiction. That parents used to keep their young kids from running off and encountering something like a coyote. But you see... Most legends and stories always portray the non-human creatures as the bad guys. All the time with next to no exceptions. That's where my town is different. Some claim to have seen creatures of the night throwing down like two drunk dads in a parking lot. The reasons they supposedly fight for are unknown. Territory, food, dominance, or just purely malice. All of them are not much more than one big conspiracy theory or tall tale. But what most people think is that while some of these beings are here to hunt, kill, and maim us, the others are here to watch over us, to protect us from the ones who only want to cause us harm and pain. As I said though, it's all nonsense. There were plenty of dangerous things in the woods without there being supernatural oddities and entities. Some people just like to amp it up for the sake of excitement and fun, which is entirely understandable. <laughs> You'll blend right in, man. Carter announces before bumping Aaron. 
Well, you're not wrong, I interject, causing both Carter and I to snicker. Hey, you're the one who's going as a dang vampire. How creative. I'm pretty sure everyone and their mother thought of that one. Aaron snaps at me from behind. Well, except my costume is the best out of all of them, I deflect. I'm just saying that if we finish early, we should go scare some of the little kids around the neighborhood. Carter suggests with a proud smile. Yeah, and then have their angry dads chasing after us. I inquire rhetorically. Use your head, dude. That's part of the fun. Carter fires back without much flair. The three of us arrive at the entrance to the forest path, standing there as nothing more than ants while the massive trees towered over us. Bushes and all sorts of shrubbery making it nearly impossible to effectively see anywhere besides straight ahead. Especially as it got darker and darker outside by the minute. Some of the trees were weirdly bent forward, almost like they were attempting to cover the path from any sunlight. A phenomenon that I didn't remember being present last year. I was a bit disappointed to see that someone had taken it upon themselves to teepee the front few trees a bit. As to why or how it made any sense, I don't know. But it did get under my skin for some reason. Who the heck TPs a forest? Jeez, did a tornado run through here? Aaron says, breaking the silence between the three of us, as we stared ahead in a shared feeling of unsettling awe. What's with the toilet paper? Carter quizzed, taking one step forward. I, I don't know. I reply, genuinely confused. Uh, let's just keep going. We want to be able to clean up the bowls before the other kids get there. This seems kind of sketch, not gonna lie. Aaron interjects. What was the point of teepeeing trees? Like I said, I huffed. I don't know. Now come on, let's go. The three of us continue forward, beginning the path and taking short but deliberate strides. We didn't let the strange unease ruin our excitement, but I would be lying if I said I wasn't on edge. As to why, well, that's the mystery. I didn't really have a legitimate reason. Toilet paper on trees isn't really enough to justify this sort of emotion. And although I've heard some horror stories of coyotes snatching up little kids, they were mostly cowards when it came to more normal-sized humans and the three of us were big enough to where I was confident we wouldn't be bothered. Hey, so one question, Carter declares, for the both of you. Yeah, Aaron and I both reply simultaneously. You guys ever heard the story about the ground grabber? <sighs> Aaron immediately snorts in reverse, as if he were just blowing out a nose full of liquid. Yeah, I won't lie, that's a pretty stupid name, I chime in failing to hold back a laugh of my own. Well, you won't think it's stupid when you find out what he did, said Carter with a straight face. My dad always told me that when he was a kid, he would always lurk in these very woods around town. Ooh, spooky. I tease sarcastically. But that still doesn't explain why it's supposed to scare us. But it does explain why it's failing. Well, maybe if you would stop interrupting me, I could keep going. Carter snaps. Anyway, they said he was a man who had been spliced with the DNA of multiple animals, mainly a groundhog. 
He was much taller and bigger than any man on the planet, strong and fast. My dad said people who messed with or disturbed the ground or natural areas like this, they would be hunted by him. He would follow them to their houses, to their place of work. No matter where they went, he would find them and eventually get them, and then take them back to his tunnels underground. Sometimes he would dig his way into the sewers and kill maintenance workers, and those that he didn't would find the corpses of large alligators in these sewers as well, torn apart by something powerful and vicious. Um, aren't alligators pretty rare in the state? Aaron interrupts. I've only ever heard of one instance of there being alligators up here. Also, why would he dig his way into the sewers? Sounds kind of stupid. Because he would be too big to fit in the manhole cover, you dope. Now, would you just have fun and enjoy the dang story? Jeez. What? I can't have fun and point out your stupid logic. The ground grabber isn't real, man. Your dad just didn't want you digging holes in the backyard with his shovels. Hey, come at me all you want, but all I'm going to say is you better stay on the path. Don't litter and don't start digging holes, as you said. When the two of them finished their bickering, we were just about halfway through the trail. The sun getting lower and lower by the second as I watched squirrels and rabbits scatter into the thick brush of the trees. But as we walk along, Aaron suddenly freezes, looking down to his right at something that clearly disturbed him. I hold up a handed signal for Carter to hold up, attempting to get to the bottom of what it is that was bothering Aaron. Hey man, you alright? I approach, trying to focus my gaze on whatever he was so fixated on, failing to see what was holding him up at first. What the? Carter inquires, seemingly having spotted the same captivating sight before I had, leaving me curious as to what it was. But Aaron simply points a finger forward at the ground, just a few feet off the path, and I finally see what it is he was talking about. Just right next to the edge of the path, sticking out from a bush, was a shoe. It looked to be around a size 13, so I assumed it had belonged to a grown man. That in itself wasn't too strange. Loose shoes are more common than most people would realize. But what did get me was the thing next to it. Less than a foot to the right of the shoe was a jack-o'-lantern. Well, a lantern. It was turned on its side, a good chunk of its upper right area smashed to pieces and embedding the remaining plastic into the ground. There was no blood and no corpse, or any sign that someone was hurt. Perhaps it was a prank or a decoration to scare kids who would cut through here. It wasn't like this was a secret route or anything. Plenty of people were aware of it. Okay, that's kind of weird, Aaron comments, taking a step back while keeping his eyes fixated on the bush. Dude, are you dumb? That's obviously just a decoration. You forget what night it is, Carter replies, although not sounding super confident about his claim. I'd probably just leave it alone, I say keeping my feet right where they were. But Carter goes full throttle towards the bush, wanting to appear stronger in his conviction. Carter, would you just leave it alone? Aaron calls out, trying to pull him back, only causing Carter to thrash forward out of his grip. What are you guys even scared for? He teases further, 
especially you, Garrett. He announced as while well, pointing right at me. Aren't you always the one saying that monsters and ghosts are a bunch of BS? Frustrated, I fired back immediately. Well, duh. I never said it proved there's a freaking monster. Maybe it's the leftovers of a mugging. Don't tamper with potential evidence. Nerd. Carter shoots back bluntly. Hey, you're the weirdo who made up the stupid ground grabber. Sometimes it takes a lot of brain power to be stupid. I ramble, my eyebrows lowering. I think that's a paradox. Aaron interjects softly. Shut up, I erupt, turning my head to face him. Carter begins to laugh as he continues getting up close to the busted jack-o'-lantern, his loud chuckles echoing throughout the forest. But all of our bickering comes to a screeching halt when a blood-curdling roar booms from the trees off the path. It sounded like it came from deep within of the woods, but simultaneously close enough to nearly shatter our eardrums right then and there. The sheer base of it was terrifying, as if a large grizzly had given everything it had to scare off a predator. As to what that predator would be, well, I'm no expert. Perhaps an even bigger grizzly. You, uh, you guys heard that right? Carter whispers, as if he is afraid that someone or something will hear him. We did, and it's our cue to leave. Aaron snaps in a similarly quiet tone. That had to be a bear, right? I mean, they don't usually come this close to the neighborhoods, do they? Carter inquires, beginning to walk forward. We're leaving, I command. Now forget the lantern, forget the stupid shoe. We're going, come on. Okay, I know I know it's scary, but you guys are telling me that you don't want to see what that was all about. Said Carter as he stands back up. No, because I'm not an idiot like you... Aaron begins before being suddenly cut off. A branch snaps not too far from behind the bush. None of us actually see the cause of it, but the sound is all too familiar. But it came off like it was a rather large one, far from a simple twig or a thin stick. The three of us decide that that was more than enough evidence for our case to leave and immediately take off, bolting down the path with all of our trick-or-treating gear in hand. I myself don't look back, but I could practically sense Carter turning his head multiple times to get a peek at whatever wild animal may or not had been on our tail. Although it was admittedly stupid to run because if it had been a dangerous predator, we would have only invited it to chase us, and we were behaving like prey. That was a bear. That was definitely a freaking bear. I don't care what either of you say. Carter declares with a not-up-for-debate tone. Would you shut your mouth? I bark in an angry whisper. If he doesn't already hear our footsteps, he'll definitely hear your big mouth yapping. I see the opening to a road. Only about another 60 yards of running and we will be free from the clutches of these woods. I don't think I necessarily heard anything chasing us. Thank God. But that didn't change this sense of impending doom going on in my head as if we were on an inevitable path to our deaths. Regardless though, we do make it to the other side of the path. Granted the three of us were wheezing and struggling to catch our breaths, it was still a far more desirable situation than being attacked by whatever bear or large predator was lurking in those trees. 
Just last week online, I read about some woman's husband getting taken by a bear. The three of us continued to stand at the end of the path hunched over, rapidly inhaling and exhaling as we attempted to regain our ability to keep going as normal. Let's... let's just hurry up and start trick-or-treating. I say continuing to huff and puff. What and just go on like nothing happened? Somebody might have gotten eaten by a freaking bear. Aaron growls at me after standing upright. We don't know that, I countered, even doubting my own words as I speak. There wasn't any blood, guts, or anything that proves there was a stupid bear attack. That doesn't mean it didn't happen either, Carter adds. Okay, and what do we do? Go to the cops on Halloween night and tell them. We maybe think somebody got eaten by a bear, because there is a shoe and a broken lantern. They're gonna think that we're messing with them. Some kids are trying to have fun wasting their time. I said angrily. Tell them about the roar, informs Aaron. Yeah, because I'm sure that would really help. Can we just forget it? It's not even that big of a deal. Seems like a big deal when you were the first one to bolt. Carter steps in. Jesus Christ, Carter, do you ever shut it? We haven't even started yet and you're already giving me a headache. I return furiously. I can't help but give Carter a hellish glare, staring him down like an angry mother would to her disobedient child. It was quickly becoming clear to me that perhaps our personalities weren't as compatible as I had previously assumed. At least not in the heat of stress, that is. I grip my candy bag and take a couple of steps forward, before looking back at my two distressed companions. I'm gonna go start getting some candy. You guys can sit here and continue to cry like babies about a stupid shoe and a lantern, or you can come with me. I pronounce softly. No, no, absolutely not. I'm going to the police station up the road, Aaron replies, putting his foot down firmly on the pavement. So, you're gonna walk another mile just for that. I implore with rhetorical intentions. Yep. Listen, that was sketchy stuff back there, but dude, I don't feel like walking to the station. Carter announces with hesitance, taking a few steps away from Aaron. Dude, what? Are you kidding? You're the one that wanted to play Detective Moron back there. Getting your face all up in that bush so something could bite it off. Oh, but now by walking to the police station, it is out of the question for you. Figures. Quit being so lazy all the time. I could tell that Carter had an answer rising in his throat, but he stops himself, holding back whatever it was he was originally planning to say, in favor of not escalating this any further. I admired him for that, but I could tell it still hadn't done very much, as his substitute answer was arguably worse. Fine, if you want to go to the station that bad, then do it, but you'll be doing it by yourself. Aaron's eyes narrow, and with a long huff he turns and begins to walk away, letting us stare right at his back as he doesn't even turn to see if we were following him. Luckily, the police station was easier to get to from where we were at, so he wouldn't have to walk back through the path in the woods, just along the road. Even though the woods were still on one side of it, the left side, just to be specific. But you see, as cold as I pretended to be, I just couldn't leave him like that, 
walking by himself in the near pitch blackness of the now early nighttime sky, with only street lamps to light his path. Not many of the homes down the street to our right had their lights on. Like I said, most of them leave the candy bowls outside and just go to bed. But do you want to know what made it worse? What truly stopped my blood flow in its tracks? I caught a glimpse of a bit of bright light in my peripheral vision. It was coming from the dense trees in the forest right to the left of the road, only around a dozen feet or so from where Aaron was walking. He himself being unaware as he kept his eyes supposedly trained in the path directly in front of him. I turned my head only slightly, trying to focus in on whatever the light actually was. And coming to find it was a bit more elevated, like the source of it was high up in one of the trees. Once I begin to further comprehend, I see what was actually two lights, not just one. Both of them in the shape of a light bulb that you would find in someone's house. And despite the fact that they appeared separate, I could tell they were both a part of one thing. One structure. One creature. Both of those yellow light bulbs move suddenly and simultaneously, staring down right at Aaron as he walks along and follows him ever so slightly. Whatever this thing was, it was precise and intelligent. That much was clear. I stand frozen, my instincts refusing to kick in. I don't see what the rest of this mystery creature looks like. The lack of light doesn't allow me. But all I know is that it was the furthest thing from both human and animal. All my doubts, all my skepticism, and all my conviction and logic were proven laughably wrong right there in that short little insignificant moment. There I stood like a fool while the universe made me eat my own words. The two light bulbs only remain up from that specific tree for a few more seconds, before suddenly dashing backward deeper into the woods, bouncing along tree by tree before soon disappearing, soon leaving my line of sight as I stare dumbfounded, yet terrified. Are you good, man? Carter approaches, putting a hand on my shoulder and beginning to shake me. You saw that, right? Please, please tell me that you saw that, I exclaim, pointing my right index up at where I had laid eyes on the unsettling sight. What are you talking about? He asks, rather confused, an eyebrow in his face rising. No, I know you had to have seen that, up in the trees. Carter narrows his eyes making his best attempt to catch a glimpse at whatever it was I had spotted. But unsurprisingly, his expression stays static, finding no visual evidence of my claim. Alright, if you're trying to be a jerk to get back at me, it's not funny, dude. Maybe we should go catch up with Aaron and convince him to. Carter begins before being swiftly cut off by yours truly. Why would I do something like that? Did the past ten minutes just not happen to you or something? I know what I saw. It was some sort of animal. An animal that shouldn't exist. Dude, you're literally the one always saying stuff like that doesn't exist, remember? It's nothing but stories and nonsense. Things that people make up to make sure their kids act right. My jaw moves as I prepare to blurt out my response, but instead, I stop. Letting out a slow, controlled exhale. My breath visible in the cool air of the night. I know, I know I'm a non-believer or whatever you call it, 
And shouldn't that show you that I'm serious? I saw something in those trees. It was watching Aaron and who knows if it's going to follow him. Carter falls silent, having trouble finding the words to form his response. At this point, Aaron is out of sight, with the three of us being too young to have cell phones, as our parents put it. We had no way to reach him other than to go after him physically. And if that was our only choice, then that was just what we were going to do. All right enough, let's go get him, I proclaim. But we need to keep an eye on each other's backs. And once we get him, we're going home, end of story. You guys can stay at my place for the rest of the night. As much as he gets on my nerves, fine. Let's go, I'm just saying that if he gets on my nerves, he's sleeping in the basement, period. When we set off, it had only been a few minutes or so since Aaron had begun his track, but he had always been a fast walker. That, combined with the poor lighting of the road ahead, led me to be unsurprised that I couldn't see him. I was still on edge, walking to the right of Carter in order to be further away from the woods, even if the distance was terribly insignificant. I had gone from being the skeptic to the most paranoid and superstitious one of the group. Not that it was completely unprovoked by any means. Part of me wanted to rationalize it. Maybe someone was just messing with us the whole time. But that part with the light bulbs would be quite difficult to pull off. Especially with amateur equipment. Carter and I get to where I had last seen Aaron before he had exited the circle of pavement lit up by one of the street lamps. We both glance around, seeing nothing in our field of view. The both of us progress further, the street becoming more isolated and empty the more distance that we cover. But even in the eerie silence, there was something that still caught my eye. An open manhole cover right in the middle of the road. Carter, I announce weakly before motioning him over with my hand. I keep my eyes fixated on it. Spotting no sort of safety equipment or sewer workers anywhere nearby. And it didn't look like it was opened very elegantly either. From what I've heard, they aren't very light. For one, there were scratches along the actual cover itself. And three parallel but also slightly jagged lines. It was also a few feet away from the edge of the entrance. I looked into the hole. Nothing but the complete darkness of the sewer staring back up at me. But you see, that in and of itself didn't really give us much cause for concern. What did, however, was a small piece of fabric also hanging from the street and dipping into the black pool of darkness leading to the sewer tunnel below. It wasn't any old piece of fabric, though. The specific colors and patterns on it belonged to Aaron's Swamp Monster costume. A piece of fabric that looked like it had been forcefully torn right from the rest of his outfit. Panic set in not too long after. Carter attempted to be rational, playing it off as Aaron trying to get revenge on us. But that just wasn't the kind of person that he was. Not in a situation like this. It was honestly even foolish of him to bring it up, considering just how genuinely upset Aaron was only minutes ago. A sudden flashing of lights burst into our eyes from further down the road, getting brighter and more potent as they approach us. I hold my hands up in front of my eyes, the quick and drastic change in light causing me to blink rapidly, but the color scheme of said lights made it quite clear what the cause was. A police squad car. 
and the vehicle rolls up next to both Carter and me, slowing down bit by bit as the front doors are level with the two of us. The passenger window slowly lowering and allowing me to see the officer inside, with a look of concern yet caution spread across his face. But Carter doesn't even pay the officer much mind, instead continuing to stare at the manhole and fabric, as if he was severely hypnotized. The officer rolls down his window, leaning towards the passenger side in order to verbally announce his presence. Hey there, boys. I hope you're out here having yourselves a good Halloween and whatnot, but, uh, what are you doing near that manhole? And why is it even open? I turn slowly, careful to look the officer in his eyes to convey the intensity of my conviction. Our friend, he's down there. Something took him. You've got to help us call for backup or something. I know it sounds like BS, but there is something dangerous out here and it's hurting people. The officer's face lights up with what I can only assume was excitement. As if he was a James Bond fanatic, who had just been offered some sort of elite espionage job. Well then, he chuckled before giving me an awkward wink, revealing a small portion of his teeth that were in desperate need of a long visit to the dentist. And don't worry, I'll play along. What are we hunting, Bigfoot? The creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, oh, I know. What about, uh, Dracula? Yeah, Dracula, that's a good one. No, 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 officer, you're not understanding. I shout, frustratedly. This isn't a joke or a game. Our friend is really down there. The officer only smirks in response, further provoking my blood to boil inside of me. I can just feel that he is in no way believing me or taking my words seriously. But regardless, he parked his squad car in the grass and stepped out of the vehicle, marching over to where we were while shining a blinding flashlight forward. If he was only going to sit there and take this as a game, then I figured that him tagging along with us would be better than no help at all. Plus, without his flashlight, there is no way we would be able to traverse these sewers and find Aaron. Him also having a gun helped, but considering the level of intelligence he had demonstrated thus far, I wasn't very confident that he would know how to use it any more than either Carter or I would. And that's really saying something. The last thing I wanted to do was even think about going down in there, but I couldn't just leave Aaron behind like that. Every second we wasted or spent up here decreased his chances of surviving whatever the heck it was that had taken him. While I held out a hope that we would perhaps be able to find him alive, reality didn't seem too keen on being kind to people in these kinds of scenarios. Carter was furious once he had snapped out of his trance, prompting the officer to tell him to calm down and that he was playing his role a little too well. Once again, taking our genuine grief and worries as nothing more than what amounted to a joke. But as I said, we needed him. Regardless of his idiocy, he had the resources that we did not. And after what I had seen looking down at Aaron from the trees earlier, there was no way I was going to go down there without a baseball bat or a club or some sort of light source present. Just to be on the safe side, I tell the officer too that I'm going to reach over and grab a stick on the side of the road. He, of course, doesn't seem to care much, going as far as to chuckle and say the sentence. And don't think no twig ever took down Dracula. Yeah, this was our help. What has the world come to in my short 13 years of existence? I think to myself. 
but I couldn't abandon Aaron. I couldn't just leave him behind. Every logical and survival instinct within was telling me this was a terrible idea. And of course it was. But who doesn't put themselves in danger when those they care about are in jeopardy? I haven't known him long, but time wasn't the only measure of a bond. Not to mention, I couldn't let him leave this earth with our final interactions with each other being unfiltered hostility. I had said earlier that our personalities might not be as compatible as we assumed, but that was no excuse to leave someone to die. The officer points his flashlight down to the manhole, verbally exaggerating his own personal fear, a fear that was nothing more than an insensitive act. All right, boys, who's going first? He smiles, oddly polite. You! I yell back immediately. You seriously want two middle schoolers going down in there before you? Okay, partner, sheesh. Don't have too much fun, he quipped. I looked around in desperation, searching for any passing trick-or-treaters, parents, or any source of help besides this guy. But the universe didn't seem to be feeling generous in that regard. All in all, I know what I should have done. I know that I should have tried much harder to find someone out and to get the heck out of there. Knock on doors, ask to use a phone, something. The officer keeps a close eye on us while beginning to climb down the ladder, making me question his stance on how much of a joke he truly thought this was. Despite his outside appearance, there is a part of me that felt unnerved by his stare like he was making sure that we weren't trying to get away. There's an uncomfortable silence as he descends. Carter and I lean down over the hole to watch in an eerie awe. The darkness almost seems to swallow him up, the only thing stopping it being his flashlight, which he finally turned on once reaching the bottom of the ladder. This tunnel appeared quite large by sewer tunnel standards. From above, I wasn't able to get the full picture or grasp of its true size. But from what I could tell the officer, had at least seven feet of space on either side of himself. I was well aware of police having some powerful flashlights, but this thing only barely put a dent in the black void that was the sewer tunnel. I can't help but hold my breath while Carter does the opposite. I was still willing to go down there for the sake of Aaron, and even though I was just a dumb middle schooler, I was still in tune with my survival instincts. If anything happened to the officer, if I heard so much as a yelp or whimper or gasp or see his eyes widen in terror, then all bets were off. But no, he seemed to calm and collected, using his flashlight to scan both in front and behind him. Oh yeah, he snickered. This is definitely a monster hideout if I've ever seen one. Wait, you're a policeman and you've never been in a sewer before, questioned Carter. I ain't no sanitation worker, the officer snaps back. He looks up at us from below, flashing Carter and I an awkward wink in an attempt to maintain his so-called character. Would you just hurry up, I demand, my anger seething as I watch this guy continuously look around like a lost child in a store. Carter goes for the ladder to start climbing, but I slightly push him out of the way, insisting that I go first. Seeing as I felt responsible for this all coming to pass in the first place, I dropped my empty candy bag to the side before beginning to descend. I climbed down, 
with the officer at least doing me the favor of shining the flashlight so I can see what I'm doing as I descend. All right, Carter, come on. I say with a rush tone, motioning for him to follow. But I don't have to tell him twice. He begins, climbing down the ladder with great haste and nearly slipping on the last couple of the steps. I turn to look down the tunnel to our left and along the walkway of concrete next to the stream of filthy sewage water sits yet another piece of air and swamp monster costume. A torn strip of it, several inches long and a couple of inches wide. The only different from the last piece, well, this time, it had a coating of fresh blood on it. And just as I'm about to scream, to project my shock and existential terror, I feel something suddenly pressed itself against the back of my head. Something hard and metallic. And then a click. The two of you won't say another word. If you scream, well, then you can forget about ever getting to live as long as originally planned. Live bait is always more effective. I stand as still as stone, slowly raising my hands into the air as I spot Carter doing the same in my peripheral vision. The both of us, as silent as can be, his voice wasn't much different, but he quickly dropped the whole intellectually inept act, opting for a more severe and threatening tone. I hear the officer, if you could still call him that, activate his walkie-talkie disguised as a typical police radio for the first time. He holds it in one hand, keeping his pistol trained on me with the other. This is Agent Owen. I've secured us a bait package. Subject 16A is out currently tracking the main target. Said he's having trouble picking up a scent. Need a status report on the rest of Team X-Zero's location. There is no response at first, so the officer tries again, beginning to repeat his previous few sentences, before being interrupted by another male voice on the other end, one that sounded quite annoyed. Yeah, I hear you. Just give me a second, Jesus. My apologies, Director. He replies with a much weaker tone than before, but if only he knew that, he would soon be given something to be much more sorry for because less than a hundred feet down the tunnel, I spat a pair of glowing dots that suddenly pierced through the darkness. But not like the light, bulb-shaped ones from earlier, no. They were different. Other than obvious, cosmetic contrast, they felt just as sinister, just as evil. I had no doubt in my mind that they were focused on us, staring us down like we were prey. They were a bright lime green, Circular in their shape and held steady. Is, is that? I began, only being cut off from my quickly rising fear levels. Every bone in my body feeling like it had turned into mush. My stomach churned. I felt just like a rabbit in the eyes of a fox. A powerful and low growl erupts from just below the dots, which themselves were placed just over eight feet high. Establishing the freakish size and scale of this mostly concealed and unseen entity. The officer, agent, mercenary, whatever he was, takes his pistol off the back of my head. His hands shaking as he points it into the occupied darkness. His breathing increases as his terror jumps to being on par with Carter and I's. Whatever training and conditioning he possessed all went out the window in that moment displaying that he was just as scared and just as human as everyone else, 
revealing the true nature that he was a coward. Another growl emerges from the mysterious beast, but this one is far more unsettling than the first. It's acknowledgement, acknowledgement of the fact that we were there. We were its gold and it had us just where it wanted us. How could it, how could it know? It wasn't supposed to be here, not yet. Agent Owen whispers under his breath, his bottom lip quivering as he does so. I pleaded with my brain to allow me to yell or scream. I don't know what this guy was talking about. Were him and his buddies hunting this thing? Why and for what purpose? What was really going on here? Owen steps forward, his hand still shaking in the gun with it, but only for mere seconds. Because he suddenly stops, dropping to his knees and strangely staring ahead, as if he were hypnotized. A deer in headlights, as they say. His grip loosens on the weapon, head dropping onto the walkway and nearly falling into the flowing and putrid smelling liquid sewage. But I don't hesitate to take advantage of the situation. I quickly lunge over and grab the gun without a second thought. Surprisingly enough, this doesn't seem to bother the agent. He appeared to not even care one bit. The hulking creature down the tunnel then lets out another earth-shaking exhale. It's base lower than the roar of an angry grizzly. It knew that it was in control, that it was the dominant one here and there was next to nothing we could do about it. It would only be a matter of time before the inevitable took place. I motioned for Carter to begin climbing the ladder with me, careful not to be too loud and provoke the beast any further. But it seemed like that card was already off the table. I'm already halfway up the ladder with Carter just below me, as Agent Owen snaps out of his trance, realizing his now terrifying circumstances. He would definitely want his gun back, and there was no way that I would be able to physically keep it from him. He was a grown man, probably with special combat and self-defense training, meaning that I stood absolutely no chance. Carter and I quickly speed up our climb as the cryptid down the tunnel began to charge, his steps heavy, sounding as if they were smashing through the very concrete itself. He was snarling with nothing but pure rage as he made his way forward, and despite my lack of ability to actually see him, I know just who he was headed for. Agent Owen grabbed Carter and threw him off the ladder latching onto the second-to-last step with his foot, only to be suddenly yanked right into the darkness of the tunnel by a massive, brown and hairy hand with fingers as big as most men's hands. He screams, a shriek of both terror and desperation. I can hear him trying to fight back against the beast, but it was pointless. All he could do was yell and plead for help as he was ragdolled and dragged down the tunnel traumatizing both Carter and I as his voice grew quieter and more insignificant. Carter gets back up onto the ladder, clearly traumatized by whatever it was that he saw. While I was above the chaos, he had been down there and more than likely got a decent look at the bulk of the creature. All I saw was a mere glimpse of what that thing actually was, but even that was enough to last me for the rest of my life. But Carter was a different story. I was worried that he might have fallen into the same trance the agent did just moments before his supposed death. 
but it was simply trauma manifesting itself in the moment. I wouldn't be surprised if he attempted to bleach his eyes when it was all said and done. My urging yell for him to get back out of the ladder before whatever it was came back for us next. Carter had gotten lucky, and all this fear and panic, Owen had thrown him to the far side of the ladder, making him the closest one in the vicinity to grab it. I don't hear his cries any longer from down the tunnel. Either that thing had taken him far away, or it had already gotten rid of him. Although, both being true at the same time was highly plausible. I get to the top of the ladder, throwing myself over the edge and onto the pavement of the road. I was just lucky there were no cars coming at the time. I grab my empty candy bag once again. My hands are shaking as I reach out for it. Carter soon joins me, the both of us taking admittedly more time than we should have to get off the road. But who could truly blame us? What is this? What is this night? Carter cries out, just before I see literal tears start to form in his eyes. What? What was down there? I focus my gaze on him, fighting to hold back tears of my own. But regardless, I step closer to my severely distressed friend, throwing my arms around him for a tight but brief hug. We were truly on our own now. No friends and no family to help. Not without a way to contact them at least. We couldn't even trust the police anymore. Who knows how many more of them were disguised as one of those agents. Carter and I break away from the hug with him, still understandably trembling. All I could think of was to walk with Carter home and let him crash in my place for the night. I felt not only wrong but strange to walk away from where it had all happened. Believe me, it was hard to accept the difficult truth. Aaron had suffered the same horrific fate as the agent. The only difference being that one of them actually deserved it. I contemplated telling one of our parents, but our entire story sounded like nothing more than a legend cooked up by some kids to get attention. But at the very least, we would have to tell Aaron's parents that he went missing, that we got split up and that we couldn't find him. It was the only plausible thing that I could think of. I would have to stand there and lie, all because the truth would only make me seem like I was nothing more than a callous teenage prankster. Carter and I would have to take the long way back. No way we were going to dare cut him back through the woods. Not after everything that had happened tonight. Although we would still be walking next to the woods, it wasn't nearly as risky. I had no problem hogging up the bike lane on the road if it meant that we wouldn't meet a horrific fate. You need anything, man? I inquired, turning to Carter who refused to make eye contact at the time. A few trick-or-treaters passed us by, concerned expressions on their faces. One even attempted to approach us before I waved him off. If he only knew what can of worms he would be opening by getting involved with us. Can you be the one to tell his parents? He responds, his voice hoarse and sour in its sound. I try to respond, but he cuts me off deciding last minute to add in another bit of commentary. The thing, the thing in the sewer. What did it do to him? What did it do? Does it want me to? The way that it looked at me, I think it was hungry. 
Now, I didn't dare bother asking him the specifics of the creature's appearance. Now was it just not the time? Even despite my burning curiosity to know what we were truly up against. You're gonna be okay, man. We'll get through this. I promise that we will. But right now, let's just get home, okay? As we walked along, I had realized that I still possessed the handgun the now deceased agent had dropped. Earlier, I was careful to go ahead and put it in my candy bag for fear of someone seeing it. Being a 13-year-old who's grown up with a mostly sheltered life, I had no previous experience with handling a firearm of any sort. So having one in my possession did have me a bit on edge. But as my dad always said, Never treat it like a toy and you'll be fine. I couldn't help but feel as if we had been followed. That something or someone was watching us. And now that I truly thought about it, I wasn't regretting getting out of there as quickly as possible. That agent's co-workers would be arriving soon, as he had called them on his radio, and they're probably suspicious after not hearing from him for the past several minutes. What other institutions had they infiltrated or gotten into? The FBI? The CIA? Who knows what they truly had control of? All I knew is that, from that day forward, I lost any bit of trust and authority. They more than likely had eyes and ears everywhere, and as technology develops, their reach can only expand. I could have sworn that something had been moving underneath my feet as Carter and I continued down the road. Now having trees on either side of us, we had gotten out of the main residential area of the upper class neighborhood, and as a result, were once again trapped in an eerie silence without the strangely comforting sounds of trick-or-treaters anywhere nearby. Once again the feeling of something moving beneath my feet popped up. I can't help but walk as if I were stepping on hot pavement, wanting to keep my feet off the asphalt of the road for as long as I could. Now while I looked a bit awkward as I did so, Carter would have usually gotten a kick out of something like this, but he was in no mood to laugh, the furthest thing from it. It still wasn't his fault though. But when I shifted my eyes just to check on him, I realized the second reason as to why he wasn't laughing. Because he too was doing the same thing. Raising his feet up higher and creating more distance in between each of his steps along the road. Coming off like someone in a marching band. You, you feel that too? I urge Carter. To which he follows up by responding with a simple nod. A terrible sinking feeling emerged in my stomach. Like when you suddenly feel yourself falling from a great height in a dream, only to snap awake at the last second before impacting the ground. I look up ahead on the empty road. It wasn't nearly as thin and vulnerable as the trail in the forest that we had gone through earlier. But at this point, it didn't feel much better. I felt just as exposed and as much like a prey item. But it was either this or directly through the woods themselves on a much smaller, thinner trail. At least this way, it would be harder for anything to ambush us without being seen on either side of the road in each tree line. And yet through all of that, a sight that both brought me grand relief and awful dread emerged from far down the road. The headlights of my dad's truck. 
They go bright as he cruises down the empty street, slowly heading towards us. I already know that he would be furious, but I would much rather deal with him than whatever was out there lurking in the shadows. And from everything that had gone down so far, this Halloween night had demonstrated that getting grounded was far better than getting eaten or taken by things that shouldn't even exist. Carter and I can only watch as he slows the vehicle, coming to a complete stop and rolling down his window before sticking his head out, with an intense and resentful glare. I try to speak, to tell him that we needed to get out of there as quickly as we could, but he holds a finger up, not in the mood to hear whatever it was that I had to say, to try and justify my disobedience. Get in the car and shut your mouth. I told you not to be coming over here, boy. You're done when we get home. I go quiet. Carter makes an effort to speak up for me once he saw that I was in no position to make any demands. Aaron's gone. We don't know where he is right now. He just got mad and stormed off on the two of us, sir. He lies. His tone unsure and underconfident. Dad stops raising an eyebrow and looking in between us once again. His steaming expression now joined by one of uncertainty. Although it did next to nothing to actually calm him down, I made a conscious effort to hide the bulge of the gun sitting in my candy bag, praying the dark would obscure my dad's ability to see it. Where the heck did you see him last? Did you call the police, tell the boy's parents, something? We don't have phones, Dad, I began only to trail off when I looked to the left and spot the last thing that I wanted to see on this night. Those yellow light bulbs. They sat about 50 meters deep into the tree line and around 8 feet off the ground. This creature had to be just as tall, if not even more so than the thing in the sewers. Was it following us? Had it been watching us this entire time and just waiting for the perfect moment to strike? As if having to worry about one unnatural creature wasn't bad enough. Spit it out, Dad bellows, snapping me out of my fixed stare on those eyes. I, of course, tried to point and nudge my dad to look at them too, but he was far too focused on Carter and I. We don't know what happened. We were planning on telling his parents, I swear, Dad, I shout back, careful to correct my tone afterward. My dad refuses to reply, instead opting to motion Carter and I into the truck as he had done minutes earlier. But I wasn't arguing. Being out here was nothing more than a risk of being in unknowable levels of danger. We're going to the police station to file a missing people's report for your friend. I don't want to hear any ifs, ands, or buts about it. Dad growled as I sat down in the passenger seat while Carter hesitantly put his seatbelt on in the back. No, Dad, we can't go to the police. I foolishly protest. How would I make this argument sound logical without the full truth? Either way, I was going to come off as insane. I said no objections, he snaps, aggressively gripping the steering wheel while beginning to turn around. You don't understand. The police, we can't trust them. These people, they, they... Not another word, Garrett, he shouts, putting his foot on the accelerator after we had fully turned around. We drive down the road, Carter tearing up once again and choking back the need to cry. I look back at him, 
sympathetically begging for him to hold it in, just for now at least, just until we were out of this car. Do you know how worried your mom and I were? There's a reason we tell you not to walk through those woods. You could have been snatched up by some weirdo, or made dinner by a bear that was looking for a meal. Dad, please just listen. Please, I'm trying to tell you that we cannot go to the police. We can't, we... Dad cuts me off by suddenly slamming his foot on the brake pedal, yelling his lungs out in a panicked burst of adrenaline, as something in front of the car supposedly caught him completely off guard. I dart my eyes to the windshield, morbidly curious to see whatever it was that had grabbed hold of his attention so abruptly. And whatever it was, it was enough to leave him sitting there speechless, terrified even, and not many things scared my dad nowadays. After years of hunting dangerous animals and competing in combat sports when he was younger, he had been more than a little hardened. But it soon became clear what he, he was so worked up about, because his shock and unfiltered look of horror was nothing in comparison to both mine and Carter's. First off, we had come to the end of the street, just only around 100 feet from being able to turn onto one of the main roads and get out of this more isolated route. We were little over a mile away from the neighborhood that dad had picked us up in. We were actually a decent distance from pretty much anyone, but nothing remote by any means. Up ahead was where the three-way intersection for us to turn on was located, and it was still there. I know it was, and usually we would see it immediately. But it's hard to do so when there's a nearly 12-foot-tall mound of dirt sitting right at the end of the road stretching all the way across the entire 25-foot width of the street, meaning our path forward was completely cut off. However, that wasn't the thing that truly made my dad look like his heart was going to stop. In front of the dirt sat an obviously large pit, its depth at least a dozen feet, but something told me that was far from accurate. Everything was quiet, not peaceful but chillingly silent. Nothing but the sound of the truck's engines among the audio deprivation of the night. How had this pit been dug so fast? Clearly, this wasn't the work of any human machinery or engineering. You see, I don't know what was truly worse. The unsettling silence or the deep and pained groaning coming from the pit. As if a lonely old man was taking his final few long and drawn out breaths. No family or friends around to comfort him. The groans slowly grow louder as my dad begins to snap out of its trance of terror, his look of horror transforming into one of seething rage, even more so than before, which was definitely saying something. These dang kids and their stupid Halloween pranks, he hollers, shaking a fist at the windshield before sticking his head out of the window. Hey, you idiots think it's funny to block the road. How many of you hooligans did it take to dig this so quick, huh? We should turn around, Carter suggested rather weakly. He himself, just as unsure as I was when it came to figuring out what to tell Dad. No laughs, giggles, or any chuckles of mischief made themselves known. Only more of the groaning. The same groaning that only became more clear and audible as the source moved closer to the top of the pit. Speaking of which, the sound which I had originally perceived as only one deeply raspy groan 
had split into two distinct noises of their own. The original one possessing a bit more bass while having a scratchy element to it. The other being a bit lighter, as if coming from a sleepy child. I felt myself slightly jolt to my seat as a severely disfigured human hand emerges over the edge of the pit, the fingers of which embed themselves into the concrete, cracking the pavement and splitting chunks of it as cracks were sent up to even the car. Whoever this hand belonged to would definitely have seen better days. Bits of flesh torn from the wrist and palm, while dirt and even what appeared to be a certain type of weed or plant was growing in the webbing between the ring and the pinky finger. We're leaving now, Dad declared with not even a sliver of hesitance. He immediately puts the truck into reverse, backing up and shifting the vehicle in order to do a full turnaround. I can only sit there shaking and shivering like a mouse whose hole had been discovered in someone's home. Perspiration emerging on my forehead as I felt my hands involuntarily reached for something to grip onto. The truck sat perpendicular on the street as my dad prepared to do a hard left and get us the heck out of there. My passenger side window faced the pit, allowing me to see the not one, but two entities emerging from it. On the left stood a man now fully revealed and on his feet, if you could even still call him a man anyway. The horrific process or ritual his body had gone through surely took his humanity away from him. He was dressed in somewhat casual clothing, clothing that was mostly torn and battered from all the damage he had seemingly sustained. If you recall me earlier describing the wounds and natural growth stemming from his hand, well, that same description also applied to the rest of his body. His face, an exposed part of chest, shoulders and legs were all covered in raw and disgusting tears of the skin. Dirt also forming around his various body parts and one of his eyeballs, even had a maple leaf growing out of it. Even pieces of his eyes and dinner fleshy worklings spread around it. The man's appearance was body horror at its most extreme. This was not the work of just some makeup or elaborate Halloween costume design. It was definitely real. Oh, so horrifically real. And here we were, caught up right in the middle of this living nightmare. It was a gross understatement to say I was inches away from vomiting on my own lap right then and there. To see someone so bad and utterly destroyed was not something that I thought I would ever have to experience, especially at this age. And yet despite all of the grotesque and disturbing features, there was one that stood out the most to me. One that wasn't very unusual at all in the grand scheme of things. The man was only wearing one shoe, or what was left of it. The front part torn open and exposing his toes that had bits of grass growing out from underneath both of the big and middle toenails. But I could make out the branding and design of the remnants of the shoe itself. The general size, the color scheme, and logos matching that of the shoe Aaron Carter and I had all found while cutting through the woods earlier on. The shoe that had been right next to the smashed up jack-o'-lantern lamp. The only thing that could be worse than seeing the victim of a tragedy that I could have prevented was the figure standing next to him. Someone who I thought I would never see again. Aaron. He was in a much less transformed state. 
but that still didn't change the fact that his hair was turning shamrock green. The flush on his arms had changed into a texture and color similar to that of tree bark. His eyes were lifeless. Nothing but two snow-white abysses that stared straight into my soul. I could tell that he was too far gone. No longer the person I knew him as. And it was all my fault. Everything that he was and had become was the result of my foolishness and inaction. It was like having my biggest and most grave mistake staring right at me, tormenting me for my moronic behavior. No, God, no, I mutter, my bottom lip quivering in both despair and adrenaline. Even my shock was minuscule in comparison to Carter's. He simply sat in the back repeating the phrase, This is just a bad dream, as Dad practically yanked the steering wheel for us to turn left. The truck makes a sharp shift to the left, shooting down the road and back down the way that we had came. Dad wasting no time in putting the accelerator pedal right to the floor. What is this? What is this night? Carter cries out from the back seat. We just need to leave. We need to take care of ourselves. Whatever that was, we ain't gonna be seeing it much longer. I'm gonna get us out of this mess, I promise. Dad assures the both of us. He couldn't just drive around the dirt. The tree line was far too thick on both sides. We would end up crashing and allowing whatever those two had turned into to get to us with no chance of escape. We continue flying down the street, whipping right past all the trees and bushes on either side of the road. I could see both Aaron and the man quickly becoming smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror, giving me great but only brief relief. We hadn't gone far, less than a quarter of a mile or so, yet I thought that would be it. I thought that would be the end of this nightmare, and it definitely seemed like that. That is until my dad slammed on the brakes once again, this time resulting in a much more disastrous outcome. Jesus, he curses, rapidly turning and jerking the steering wheel while trying to desperately come to a stop. The truck suddenly and violently turns to the side and skids, our seatbelts being the only thing keeping us all from suffering horrible head and bodily injuries. But that still didn't stop my shoulder from slamming up into the window as the vehicle collides with the structure my dad had failed to avoid. I can practically feel the bruise forming as I grit my teeth and groan as a result of the following pain. From what I could tell, Carter was just on the edge of passing out from all the psychological stress he had endured up to this point. My dad, on the other hand, his angry, confident facade had now completely faded, instead being replaced by existential dread. I had never seen him like this before, not even in our darkest times as a family. The truck suddenly shifts, as if it's about to be tipped over. I look outside to see that we were halfway inside of another identical ditch to the one just a few hundred feet away, blocking this end of the road as well with another behemoth wall of dirt sitting right behind it. We were trapped. Stop, stop, don't move. I scream with a desperate pitch, holding both my hands up to Carter and Dad. But even such a gesture like that causes the truck to move once again, slightly tipping to the right and almost falling into the pit below. Dad attempts to go forward and then turn left, 
but it does little to help the overall predicament. So I do everything I can to shift my mass to the left, going against my previous conviction. I tell Carter to do the same, to which he obeys after a bit of rapid blinking. Quickly moving over in the back seats once he fully regains his consciousness. It surprisingly seems to work. The truck's tilting slows and becomes much more gradual, gaining more traction on where the road had been cut off. Us slamming into a section of the dirt actually ended up being a blessing in disguise, as some of it had slid forward into the depth of the pit and allowed the truck to be pushed further left and thus away from the edge of the pit. Out, now! Dad commands the both of us, opening his door and snarling at Carter to do the same. I climb across these seats like a startled raccoon, nearly hitting my chin in the steering wheel as I pull myself out of the vehicle. I take great care to grab the candy bag and retrieve the gun from it, as I felt it would be needed sooner than I had hoped. I was planning on handing it to my dad if it really came down to it. Once again, there were far too many trees and shrubbery for us to drive around the mound of dirt, so we had no choice but to get out of there on foot. We begin to run, abandoning the very vehicle my dad had owned for nearly two decades. It was practically one of his children, but in this moment of life and death, stakes, it was nothing to him. The three of us run the corner of the dirt mound, dad beginning to wheeze only a few meters into the sprint. His age had certainly caught up with him, and despite all of his physical activity and fitness training in his younger years, his knack for smoking a pack a day in recent years wasn't doing him any favors. But the three of us were all suddenly stopped right in our tracks. As the truck had been suddenly and violently launched right in front of us, smashing right into the trunk of a tree and causing the engine to be immediately destroyed, smoke rising from the disfigured and banged up hood. I stumble and fall backward, the ear-shattering sound of the collision causing me to complain in a wave of painful ringing, only for it to be amplified when it was followed by a deep, triumphant, guttural roar. A roar with a magnitude so great, it threatened to throw the trees around us right from their roots. Carter, Dad, and I all look over to the right. All of our eyes go wide as we backed up. It took me a second to get back to my feet and grab the candy bag wrapped around the gun, my initial instinct being to freeze and then bolt. The beast. It was the creature from the sewers, the one that had taken both Aaron and Agent Owen. How did I know? Well, I recognized those eyes. Those bright green, piercing, sinister eyes. The ones that had sent Agent Owen into a trance in the tunnel. And there was a good chance that I would be next. The beast was as tall as I'd previously predicted. Somewhere in the eight-foot range, he was bipedal, standing upon two massive webbed feet. His basic body structure resembled that of a human, with four limbs if you didn't count his neck and head, but he was the furthest thing from any homo sapien that I knew. He was extremely bulky, looking as if he could have been Hulk Hogan's big brother. His skin wasn't skin at all, at least, not in the left half of his body, which was covered in chocolate brown fur, like that of a beaver. The fur in his left half ran from head to toe, even his so-called fingers were covered in it. 
His face was an amalgamation of what looked to be multiple different animals. His nose was long, sticking at least a few inches out from his body, from between those green and glowing eyes. His mouth was in the shape of a rectangle, filled to the brim with jagged teeth as sharp as surgical knives. On top of that were two long, slimy and discolored tongues emerging from opposite sides of his jaws, both of them dripping with whatever bacteria-induced fluid this thing probably called saliva. Which one of you shall I start with first? The beast inquires proudly in his chilling voice. It's based like that of a large drum, along with being scratchy and somewhat distorted, as if two of them were speaking at once, creating an echo effect. I suddenly feel a strange texture grip itself onto my back and shoulders. Something had both grabbed and restrained me, causing me to drop the bag and letting the gun fall out. The same could be said for Carter minus the gun part. He had his arms forcefully put behind his back by the transformed version of Aaron, who appeared to possess great strength, while Carter was definitely much larger than him when he was still a normal kid. But this version of Aaron had no struggle at all with keeping him where he wanted him. Whatever the ground grabber had transformed him into, it was clear he retained no shred of his former humanity. And yet despite all of this, Dad was still free. Speaking of which, he took the opportunity to die for the gun that had dropped, causing an outcry for me, having a bad feeling that it wouldn't end well. Dad, don't! I shout, attempting to wriggle myself out of the grasp of the transformed man. The weeds growing from his hands uncomfortably brushing up against my forearms as he held my arms behind my back. I don't know what corner of hell you crawled out of. Dad shouts in a futile attempt to be assertive with this massive entity. But you're going back. He holds up the weapon, pointing the barrel right at the head of the monster, and fires two different shots just as the beast raises its right hand. The rounds tearing through his flesh and going just below his knuckles, and causing him to roar out in pain. A small but still present bit of graphite black blood dripping from the new tiny holes within the creature's hand. Stop! Just stop! Carter shouts, that desperation in his eyes from earlier now reappearing. But my dad continues to shoot, up until the beast retaliates against the assault, spreading his fingers apart and proceeding to pull his arm back before coming down at the backhand against Dad. The hit collides, sending his body flying over a dozen feet before violently slamming into a tree. Nothing but the sounds of his bones shattering and his joints being turned into mush, as the flesh on his back peeled away, as what remained of his corpse fell off the trunk of the tree. And even through all of that, the gun itself was unharmed. As much as I didn't want to accept it in the slightest, I knew there was no way he could have survived such a powerful blow. I could only watch as he finished peeling away from the tree, his skin and tissue stuck between both his back and the trunk while he fell forward onto the ground just in front of it. It had a similar visual outcome to that of peeling one piece of bread away from a freshly made grilled cheese sandwich. But he barely had had time to scream or make any auditory expressions of his pain. The sheer physical force and trauma of the hit, killing him near instantly. Dad! I howled like a dying dog 
tears forming in my eyes. If I hadn't still been restrained, I would have fallen to my knees right then and there. Left to lay on the ground as I screamed in agony from the fresh wound of seeing this monstrosity brutally take out my own father in front of me. And the worst of it all, I had no time to cry to mourn or to process the heart-shattering reality of what had just taken place. And as the creature moved toward me, I assumed I would be joining my dad in sharing his fate very soon. In the, the tunnels, tunnels weren't you? you? The ground grabber growls as I strain my neck to look up at his hulking figure. His smile awkward due to the almost alien shape of his mouth. I'm grateful I saved you two for last. You will both make fine additions to my lineup. Far better and more intelligent than the ones covered in the pine. He shows off his jagged teeth as his smile widens, slowly reaching out to me with his hairy hand. This is it, I thought. This right here would be the end of me, the end of my short 13-year life. Every achievement, failure, and lesson I learned would ultimately be worthless as death was coming right for me, and I was powerless to stop it. And it wasn't until more gunfire suddenly erupted from further down the street. It was louder and far more rapid in nature. It was definitely more than just one bullet flying at a time. These shots had to be coming from something automatic, far more powerful than the pistol I had retrieved from Agent Owen. The beast suddenly pulls his hand and arm away, roaring in agony as a few of the bullets managed to land within his forearm. I dart my eyes to the right, spying a group of four heavily armed and geared up men and women. They were covered shoulder-to-toe in black body armor, firm boots on their feet, and advanced-looking visors over their eyes. In their hands, they held heavily loaded assault rifles, long magazines sticking out from the bottom and high-tech scopes on the tops. They looked like soldiers, nothing that I've seen from the United States military, unless they got an outfit change. But something told me otherwise, and I just couldn't put my finger on it. One of the men and one of the women stopped to reload their weapon, as the other two opened fire onto the ground grubber. He quickly dashes backward in the fury of bullets flying near him, picking up Dad's damaged truck and holding it up in front of him as a sort of shield. But even then, it only just about does its job. The bullets effortlessly tear through the metal of the vehicle. These rounds were dangerously powerful and made the handgun look like a water pistol. So instead, the ground grabber takes a different approach, pulling the truck back and launching it at the four agents as they continue to fire on him, causing all of them to either yell, quickly move out of the way, or both. I was expecting to see blood, to hear the sounds of bones being crushed by 4,000 pounds of damaged metal, and to hear the agonized screams of the unfortunate target that it had hit. But the thing is, the pickup truck never landed, it never hit anyone. I kept my eyes closed in order to avoid actually looking at the result, but no sound of the impact ever came, because it was caught en route. Hold your fire! One of the agents commands the others, as they all look up at their unlikely savior. I thought my eyes were deceiving me, that everything that had happened throughout this night was nothing more than a product of a nightmare. I wanted to wake up, to be able to hold my dad and go to school as usual. But no, the universe was not that kind. 
I get a good look at the creature who had caught the truck and saved those agents from certain doom. And once again, the reality of it all hits me like a buzz. On top of the million emotions running through my brain. Everything from crippling grief to seething anger. He was inhumanly tall on two legs, reaching the eight feet mark just like the ground grabber, but they greatly differed in bulk. While the ground grabber possessed biceps that would make the Incredible Hulk himself blush, this being was rather skinny with not much muscle mass to be seen. And yet it didn't hold him back whatever so in the strength department. His skin was hairless and a midnight blue shade. He almost blended in with the night. But those eyes, oh, I recognized those eyes. Two glowing yellow light bulbs sitting right on the front of his face. Above the mouth filled with freakishly sharp teeth. But he didn't show his with a sinister grin. Rather, he gritted them together in a face that screamed he was more than pissed off. He held the vehicle with both his hands, hands that were outfitted with chillingly long fingernails. Fingernails that not only had a bit of dried blood in them, but also pierced the very metal of the truck that he was holding. Finally, what were you doing out in the dang woods, freak? One of the agents standing behind him grills rather forcefully showing next to no gratitude for what the creature had done to save his life. There were others. The tall blue figure responds, as he tosses the truck over to the side and into the tree line, not even looking back at the agent as he says it. I feel the deformed man tighten his grip around me, Aaron doing the same on Carter, causing the both of us to whimper before Carter yells out. Whoever you guys are, just please kill these things already. And just as he finishes his outburst, another figure crawls out from the pit nearest to us. Once again, the entity definitely had remnants of being human, but the skin on its hand was torn, ripped, and messily stripped off. Its arm was even worse, with dirt falling from some of the open wounds and plants and growing out of the remaining bits of intact flesh. But as I see the torn fabric and a dark blue color covering some of the upper forearm and above, I begin to quickly realize who this was, or who they once were. Agent Owen. He effortlessly leaps over the edge of the pit, landing friendly on his feet in the road. There's a silence, with the neighborhood and closest people being about a mile away. It seemed like help was not coming anytime soon. But I'm not sure what anyone besides the military or a freaking SWAT team would do in this situation regardless. Agent Owen's fake police officer outfit had been ripped to shreds. His face was so dead, monstrous even. He immediately glanced at the ground grabber with his now sunken eyes, a sinister look of acknowledgement, as if he were about to take great pleasure in what was soon to happen. Owen, what did he do to you? An agent desperately inquires from behind the tall blue beast. Oh my god. Another adds, lowering her weapon in disbelief. The ground grabber then waves his left hand, signaling for Owen to go forward. He of course obeys, beginning to charge at his former comrades in an inhumanly fast sprint, closing the few dozen feet of distance in seconds. When he was still alive, I heard him say something about Subject 16A on his radio. The blue creature, he must have been it. 
The ground grabber then signals for Aaron and the one shoe man to come forward and join Agent Owen in his attack on the agents, making his control over them clearer. The agents scatter and begin to fire their weapons as I feel the grip on my arms completely loosen. Both me and Carter now free to move as we please. The ground grabber and 16A both begin to run at each other, with 16A oddly dropping down in a quadrupedal fashion and charging forward on all fours. And despite his seemingly bipedal body and bone structure, he appeared to somehow traverse the distance even faster and moving in this particular fashion. The gunfire from the agents continue as Aaron, the one shoe man, and Agent Owen all converge on them, dashing to the sides, jumping into the air, and doing everything in their power to be as elusive and hard to hit as possible. And unlike the ground grabber, the few bullets that did hit them did not cause them any physical pain, despite Aaron having one of his fingers shot right off. They did damage, but it wasn't slowing them down at the same time. I assume they probably required a headshot to die, and if that was the case, it would be extremely difficult to put them down due to their rapid, elusive, and well-thought-out movements. Once 16A and the ground grabber are within around 10 feet of each other, 16A jumps off the ground and pounces onto the front of his bulky opponent, only for this move to backfire as the ground grabber wraps his arms around 16A's back and proceeds to body slam him right into the road cracking the pavement as a result. 16A fires back by lifting the ground grabber off himself and throwing him to the side, the grabber colliding with my dad's destroyed pickup truck and bending the metal as he does so. I turn my head away from the spectacle of these two massive sized titans duking it out and over in the direction of my dad's body. Nothing could have prepared me for the aftermath of the ground grabbers attacking him. I had watched plenty of horror films, many of them being movies about zombies. I had seen plenty of fake and scripted stuff in my short life at the time, and it never truly had bothered me. But seeing it in person was a far different story. For one, it was the body of my own father, the man who had raised me, clothed me, fed me, and bathed me. The man who I had spent hours with up late at night with conversations about where my life would go and how he would be there to support me along the way. My first house, my first car, my first girlfriend. He always told me that he would be there for all of it. But it was all gone now. All those potential moments lapsed in time to strengthen the bond between father and son, just wiped from the face of the earth. I wanted him to die old in his bed with me, my mother and my older brother standing next to him. He deserved to leave this earth at peace, surrounded by his loved ones. But no, instead he was killed by a hideous, disgusting monster. I dar my eyes between both the remains of my dad and the gun, my heartbreak forming into a boiling pot of rage, deep-seated anger at this thing that had taken him from me. What are you doing, man? We gotta go! Carter howls, yanking me by the arm barking at me repeatedly to get my butt moving and get out of there. The gunfire from the agent still continues as they attempt to kill their dangerously quick assailants. Subject 16A and the ground grabber continue their scrap not too far away, 16A quickly running up a tree on all fours, and then proceeding to pounce down on the ground grabber from above, violently tackling him before lifting him up 
and slamming them clean through the trunk of one of the trees. He goes in for another attack, swinging with his right hand and slashing the ground grabber with his right claw along the left half of his body, drawing that grotesquely colored blood as a result, and causing the now further wounded beast to throw an uncoordinated blow to 16A's chest as he wailed from the sting of the laceration. The resulting punch launching 16A several feet backward before he too collides with the tree trunk. But I look away and back at the gun as Carter continues to practically holler at me like a banshee. Let us go. Come on, man. We have to get out of here or we'll die. I can't let another friend of mine die. I didn't respond, not verbally anyway. I can't muster up the emotional strength to speak to another human being. The only emotion in my mind was vengeance. With tears forming in my eyes, I reached down and picked the gun up. Doing everything I can to avoid looking at all the peeled and raw flesh on the back of my dad. The pistol feels lighter in my hand than the first time that I held it. Proudly due to the intense rush of adrenaline that was flowing through me. I felt every possible emotion at once. But it was all driving me. Driving me to point the weapon right at the ground grabber as he and 16A continued their scrap. The agents far behind still on the road were yet again having trouble hitting the grabber's disciples. Transformed Aaron even got within a dangerously close distance of one of the agents without being shot in the head. Taking advantage of the golden opportunity as she had ran out of bullets and attempted to quickly reload a rifle, jumping up and biting her right in the jugular. Even through the body armor she was wearing his rotted teeth sank deep into the woman's flesh as she cried out with her gurgled scream. Just before Aaron pulled back with his jaw still clamped down, and ripped all the inner workings from her throat right out. A spray of red followed as she collapsed, no longer able to scream as Aaron stood above her dying figure and spit whatever was left within his mouth out. In his expression, there was not a single bit of regret or sympathy for what he had just done. Fresh blood and strips of flesh staining his disfigured lips. The agent to her left, however, gets grabbed by the former agent Owen his hand wrapping around his throat and lifting him into the air, before throwing him several feet backward, displaying his newly inhuman strength. I feel complete, he announces as he walks toward his former comrade. You should let him take you. It's better in the end. He follows up, curling his lips into a sinister grin. Go to hell. This ain't the Owen that I know. I know you're still in there and you can fight it. But I've got a job to do. The agent replies with a violent cough, just before I see him reach into his utility belt and retrieve a grenade. Owen pounces on him, presumably to tear him limb from limb, but the agent was rather smart and resourceful. He held his grenade firmly in his hand just after pulling the pin off. Owen completes his leap, now landing on top of the man and lunging downward with his mouth wide open and deformed teeth bared. It was clear that he was going to meet the same fate as his female colleague, at least until he shoved his hand inside Owen's mouth, the same hand holding the soon-to-explode grenade. The agent let out a blood-curdling shriek as Owen clamped down on his hand, presumably disconnecting his fingers from their appropriate tendons and muscles. The sounds of bones crunching even being heard in between sections of gunfire and cries of desperation as well as the roaring and snarling of both the ground grabber and subject 16A. 
but the grenade soon explodes, killing both the resurrected version of Owen and the agent along with him. Carter full-on wraps his arms around me, breaking me out of my mindless stare at all the chaos that was going on. Attempting to drag me away, I noticed my gun was no longer even pointed at the ground grabber, as he and 16A kept up their fight and moved out of the path of where my barrel was pointed. Stop! Garrett, stop! Don't do it! Don't! Carter orders, his grip tightening around my waist. I throw my left elbow back into his chest, causing him to groan as I walk forward and aim my gun back at the ground grabber, who was currently holding 16A up against a tree with one hand wrapped around his throat. 16A struggled and kicked to get out, attempting to slash and lacerate him with his claws but to no avail. You are nothing. The ground grabber growls with a cocky smile filled with teeth, following up his sentence by delivering a violent left hook to 16A's jaw with his monumental-sized fist. A bit of blood falls upon his knuckles as a result, dark blue in color and the same tint as 16A's skin. Nothing but another fool than the long line of beings who have challenged me and failed. My children will kill your armed friends, but fortunately for you, you'll be long dead before they fit it. The ground grabber is quickly cut off, suddenly dropping 16A onto the ground with a loud cracking thud, as he had smashed through a branch on his way down. He looks over at me, the barrel of my gun smoking and me standing there gritting my teeth, instantly regretting my decision. He puts his hand over his hairy upper left thigh where the bullet had penetrated, his signature black ooze of blood leaking, accompanied by his pained growls. I attempted to take a second shot, only for the gun to tragically click. No ammo left. No, no! Carter whines, backing up like a puppy whose owner had just come home and seen damaged furniture. I did the same, only to hear the sudden and swift sound of Carter turning and hightailing it out of there. I didn't blame him. If I was going to die, he didn't want to go down with me. But my mind had been so cluttered with the thought of revenge that I forgot the true danger and threat of what was in front of me. In all honesty, I had tried to aim for his head, but my lack of both experience and upper body strength had sealed my now incoming fate. The grabber makes a fist, raising it high in the air as I attempted to back up, only to trip and fall like the clumsy, desperate, and young idiot that I was. With my butt on the ground, I could only watch as he got ready to turn me into nothing but a pile of meat. Now you will join your father, you irritating little nuisance. He snarls, and then it starts to come down. I close my eyes, preparing for the only nanoseconds of pain before I was wiped from the face of the earth. But it never came. Instead, I reopened my eyes, only to see 16A himself standing right in front of me, his left claw holding up the ground grabber's right fist. Go before you die. 16A snarls without looking back his battered and bruised body not holding him back from continuing the fight. I immediately crawl in reverse, twigs and branches poking my hands while also tearing apart the cape of my costume. 16A shoves back against the ground grabber, lunging forward and slashing him three times in the face with his claws. Blood gets drawn and the grabber goes blind in one eye, as it had been completely scratched out, cursing 16A for what he had just done. 
The ground grabber reaches up and wraps his large hands around 16A's head, attempting to squeeze with enough force to crush his skull, only for his 16A to counter his attack by throwing a punch hard enough to somewhat bury the ground grabber's head into the very dirt it was previously resting on. After this fails to get him out of the tight grip, he throws another powerful blow and then another, until I could visibly see his opponent's blood on his knuckles and trickling down his claws. But the ground grabber had enough, violently throwing his neck forward and headbutting 16A, sending him several feet both into the air and flying backwards. I roll over to the side, saving myself from being crushed by the weight of this massive creature. Despite how thin he was, I knew he still had to be at least two and a half times my mass due to his monstrous height. 16A quickly recovers turning and leaping onto a tree to begin running up it, presumably to perform a similar attack from above like he had earlier. But instead, he was caught by the ground grabber, who bashed him with the full weight of his much heavier body and then picked him up over his head before slamming him onto the ground right at his feet. Before his 16A could maneuver out of the way or get back up, the ground grabber stomped his left foot onto his chest, sending him an inch or two into the dirt as payback for the blows 16A had delivered upon him earlier. I could hear an uncomfortable cracking in 16A's chest as the foot made contact. Even 16A snarled and bared his teeth, trying to hide how much agony it had truly caused him. 16A pierces his claws into the flesh of the ground grabber's ankle, which works against him only slightly. Sure, the ground grabber definitely reacts the way you would expect, lifting his foot and howling, but only for a brief moment before slamming it right back down, making 16A desperately reach for something to grab to strike him with. There the both of them were, battered, bloody, and heavily bruised, but the display was clear. The creature who was on my side all along, the one who had set out to protect me, had lost the fight. After your death, the rest of this town will follow suit, and soon after this planet. Goodbye, blue one, you too weren't strong enough. The ground grabber raises his foot high above 16A's head, presumably getting ready to smash his skull. It looked like the end for him, that this would be it and I would be next. I got up and turned around to run, knowing that as soon as he had finished off a 16A, it would be my turn to meet a grisly fate, except I wouldn't have a fighting chance without any significant weapon, and even then I had no idea what I would actually do. I only knew how to turn off the safety and pull the triggers. But just as I thought all hope was lost, just as I wait to hear the sound of 16A's skull being smashed into the dirt, a final short burst of gunfire crackles through the air, along with a loud, frustrated, and triumphant battle cry, which was then soon followed by a ground-shaking thud. I turned to see what had just taken place, not wanting to get my hopes up yet, still being optimistic as to what would appear as a result of those sounds but nothing could have left me more relieved than what I had laid my eyes upon. 16A was still alive, albeit with still significant bruises and wounds, but for the most part he seemed fine. He was able to slowly rise off the ground, granted that he struggled here and there as he did so. To his right was the ground grabber, who was now a corpse, 
his head, a pile of brown and black mushroom taking so many powerful gunshots to it. I felt my stomach churn as 16A bent over and began to quite literally feast on the ground grabber, ripping and tearing with his razor sharp teeth and claws, slicing off chunks of meat before inserting them into his mouth as he crunched and chewed loudly, not a care in the world about who saw him doing so. Or at least, that's what it looked like. The ground grabber's brains were definitely spilled, his oddly discolored and strangely shaped brain that is, resembling more of an oversized piece of charcoal rather than anything close to the human brain structure. But as to who would actually put an end to this wicked life form, well, it was the last remaining agent, the one lucky woman of the four who hadn't fallen victim to either the ground grabber or his transformed and rabid killers. She dropped to her knees, letting out a heavy breath as her rifle fell to her side under the street. 16A had seemed grateful for her action, although it seemed any emotional intimacy with humans appeared somewhat difficult for him. I did it for the bonus, not you, so don't get all hyper, she said rather harshly. Despite the fact, 16A had barely even said a word. He goes back to chowing down regardless. Everything that had happened, it was all finally over. At least physically anyway. I couldn't imagine all the years of intense therapy it was going to take to unscar my mind from all of this. Regardless, he was dead. And so were his resurrected puppets. But plenty of blood was shed in the process. All three of the other agents were dead, one woman and two men. My friend Aaron was still gone from this earth. But part of me saw it as a good thing, a much more merciful fate than being trapped as a mindless puppet for some other being. The female agent grabs what appears to be a walkie-talkie, pressing a button on the side before speaking into it. This is Agent Amanda. The threat has been terminated. Three casualties on my location. I repeat, only both I and Subject 16A still remain. A few seconds of silence pass before a somewhat familiar male voice responds. Sending a chopper away with the recovery team. Are there any witnesses? Have you terminated them? Terminated? I repeated to myself. Oh no. Before I can even think about turning around, I hear the agent shout my way. Stop! She commands. Licking down the scope on her rifle after picking it back up forcing me to put my hands up and stop dead in my tracks that I hadn't even gotten a chance to create. I look at 16A, hoping that he would be able to convince her otherwise, but he only holds his side after standing back up, still a bit of his own blood on his claws. He does make eye contact with me, however, his gaze being one of almost pity. Would he even know what that is? He should be able to go. He surprisingly speaks up, his bassy voice contrasting with the agent's lighter but firm one. You don't make the rules, freak, she shouts. She then approaches me after getting back to her feet, still making sure her weapon was trained on me. But she takes one hand off, reaching into her utility belt and pulling out some small vial of a strange white liquid, popping off the cap as she got within reach of me. She pulls it out with her hand while holding the vial, putting the top of it just underneath my nose, forcing me to inhale whatever fumes it was putting out. Fumes that caused me to become dizzy. My eyelids heavy as my muscles turned into glass, 
as if it was some strange variant of chloroform, which it probably was in all honesty. Nonetheless, I blacked out, only to awaken some unknown amount of hours or days later, strapped to some sort of chair in what looked to be a highly sterilized interrogation room. The walls and ceilings were a pristine white, but it was more than just about them being clean. It felt cold, lifeless, distant, no sort of color or personality present whatsoever. As if someone had sucked all the life out of this building, if there was any to begin with. My eyes still felt heavy as I attempted to get my bearings, wondering where exactly they had taken me. I honestly expected myself to be dead, seeing as they said something about terminating witnesses. Garrett, a voice that I know all too well speaks, interrupting the deafening silence. I turned, shocked to see Carter sitting to my right, tied up in a chair just as I was. The difference being that he now possessed both a black eye and a bottom lip with dried blood on it. What did they do to you? I asked with great concern, still somewhat bitter about how he had abandoned me. I still didn't entirely blame him, but it hurt nonetheless. More of them came, he told me weakly. They got me before I even made it home. I tried to fight back, but it was stupid. They're trained and grown, and I was on the ground in like two seconds. I paused, not knowing what kind of response I could have possibly given that would make this situation any better. Truth be told, I wasn't the best at handling stress. This was just an entirely different ballgame. But I never got the chance to even finish thinking about what it was that I was going to say, as a door had opened and three people had entered the room. The one in the middle was a woman of both average height and build, her outfit of choice being a lab coat and a plain shirt underneath so I assumed her to be a scientist of some sort. She definitely seemed like she had quite a bit of authority just by her confident stare and the way that she walked. She was probably in her late thirties or so. Her long blonde hair was in a ponytail with glasses that sat upon her face. In her hand, she held a binder filled to the brim with all sorts of papers and documents. The man to her right was on the taller side, but not freakishly large by any means. He was clearly older, definitely between 45 to 50. He wore a pristine gray suit, dressed with the grace of a CEO, not a single wrinkle in it could be found. And finally to the left was the female agent who had captured me in the first place after everything that had gone down. She appeared to be finishing up a conversation with the man in the suit. We'll have her hands on all witnesses soon, director. The tech department is combing through both the surface level and deep web for any traces of footage or civilian documentation regarding the mission assets. Anyone that threatens to expose things they shouldn't know about will be taken care of. I can assure you that. Well, glad to hear it. Now please leave the room. Dr. West and I have things to discuss with these two. He replies with an enthusiastic frown. The agent obeys, turning around and pulling the handle to the same door the three of them had entered in through. A silence befalling the room until it once again closes and she exits. Hello boys. Dr. West greets coldly, like a teacher talking to a student he despised. If you let us go, we won't tell the cops or anything, we promise. Carter spats. The director and Dr. West have next to no reaction to Carter's words. Instead... The director steps forward, confidence in his eyes. 
It wouldn't matter if you did. I mean, you two of all people should know that. Do you know why? Because you have agents in the police force, I reply, attempting to display confidence of my own. Oh no, that's only a small part. You see, the police answered us. Calling or telling them will be of no use to you. We are kind of like the police, except we enforce the laws of what should and shouldn't be here on this planet. Dr. West goes on, opening up her binder and staring into it as she monologues. You boys saw things you weren't supposed to. Talk to people you weren't supposed to. Normally, we would just kill you and be done with it. Witnesses make things messy for us. And our jobs are already hard enough that we hunt down the beings and entities that should have never existed in the first place. The director adds, You don't do it because you care about humanity. You do it for profit, I bet. I erupt. My dad is dead because you guys suck at your jobs. Your dad is dead because he made a foolish mistake. I hope you'll be smarter. Dr. West cuts in. No regret in the callousness of what she had just announced. I feel my blood boil as she says it. Every burning nerve on my body telling me to strangle her right there and then if I physically could. But there I sat, powerless to react in any other way than yelling and kicking. You see, we would like to offer you boys to join us. Clearly, your curiosity and determination to stick your noses where they don't belong could be useful if conditioned and trained properly. However, the alternative is I call one of my agents in here to come put a bullet in each of your heads. Announces the director with a stern, unforgiving tone. Work for you. First off, we're only 13 and second. Why would we want to do that? So we can be sent in to kill these things that will tear us apart like those other agents. I grill rather forcefully. You don't, Dr. West replies, but it's your only option. You will be paid and given benefits and we won't send you out on any missions until you're at least 18. Can't have two emotional teenage boys out there anyway, but just know you will never have contact with the outside world or your families again. No, our friend got turned into one of those things and died because of your guys, Carter bellows. Is that your final answer? Dr. West inquires. Carter then suddenly closes his mouth, realizing the gravity of the situation and choosing his next words carefully. But both the director and Dr. West shoot each other a glance of mutual annoyance at our indecision and inaction. Coming to the conclusion that it was best to leave the two of us alone for the time being. Oh, come on, Ted. West nags. Let them think about it. If they don't have an answer by the time we come back, well, they know what'll happen. Ted, the director, whatever his name was, nods in agreement, although still looking painfully annoyed himself as well. I'll give you boys some time to really consider what kind of decision you're making here. Hopefully you choose correctly. If not, then say farewell to each other before your termination. If it's a yes, however... Well, then I guess I'll have to get you guys started on your training and formally welcome you. A welcome that wouldn't be warm at all, I thought to myself. Welcome us to what? What is this all truly? Carter asks in a rather rhetorical manner, but Ted still answers him regardless. A welcome to the agency.
If you've made it this far, I would like to give you a special thanks for listening to today's stories all the way through. I really appreciate you and hope you enjoyed them. I also really appreciate today's sponsors, Wondery. You can listen to amazing podcasts one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus and the Wondery app. And Shudder. Try Shudder free for 30 days by going to Shudder.com and using promo code MrCreeps. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying warm and staying safe. Have an amazing morning, day or night. And remember, stay creepy. Stay creepy.